All right. There's no way that's an Emory song, though, Toby. Oh, it is. It is. It's, is it Emory? New... What happened to Emory? They used to be a screamo band. That's it, not right. It's even better now. We still are a screamo band, but now we're taking over everything. We, this music is just... <laughs> what is it? Americana? Is it country? Is it... I, I just call it amazing is what I call it. It's our it's new an EP. It's our new EP, Palmetto. And if it, you don't have it, you can go to Emoryland. Right, you can go to Emory Music. Well, the only way you can get it is in Emoryland. It's not public. It's just an experiment we did to try some outside stuff uh, and just scratch a couple of itches as we continue to develop our music. So, of course, this is not the new sound of Emory in any particular way. But I thought this song was terrific, and these recordings that we did, kind of for fun, just to go outside of what we normally do, actually turned out really good. The response has been incredible. But it is only for Emoryland people, and so don't be too particularly worried. Our next album is coming soon we're all, we're wrapping up our whole new album's almost done and emory land has most of that as well and it's still yeah. got all the classic emory sound and oh, everything that you will want but this project's turned out really really good and we're going to play some of this music and more in april so if you didn't get tickets to that yet you can go to emorymusic.com and you'll see that we have a special evening show uh it'll be more casual dressy attire there'll be some food there and it'll be a special event where we're trying out a bunch of new types of uh performance and music and new songs and continuing to evolve as a band and celebrating what we've been able to do thus far. So you can look at our website for that. And while you're there, you'll see, speaking of changing of times and moving on in life, we have two tour buses that Emory owns and have used for more than a decade, uh, and we're going to sell them. We're updating our touring model and event model and things we do. So those buses, as sad as thing I've ever talked about is not continue to have them. Most of, I feel like a lot of my whole life development has happened in them, and I've thought of them as my home for such a long yep. time. But it is time to sell them. They're worth. Um, they're surprisingly affordable and useful in a lot of different ways, whether or not be touring or living in or RV, you know RV people, mobile yep. home people. There's lots of good uses for them. But you can see them on our website too. Uh, also, today's show is sponsored by Joybird. You can create furniture that matches your own fearless style at joybird.com slash badchristian25. That's joybird.com slash badchristian25. Today's show also sponsored by stamps.com. You can get a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale by going to stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter the code badchristian. So what's going on, Toby? Oh, nothing much, Matt. What's going on with you, my friend? Well, I am giving my first public talk tomorrow night. Oh, my God. A public talk? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People might think I'm a public speaker because I talk to you in a, over Skype, right. but I've never done anything that I would call public speaking before, but I have my, mm-hmm. I've accept, I've been asked many times, but I've always been basically afraid of it, right. uh, but I've accepted a speaking engagement tomorrow night wow okay i got two questions one yes uh where and who's it for what and two what you're going to talk about okay i'll answer question two first okay i have no fucking idea i'm terrified (laughs) 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 but i'm gonna do it and i committed myself to it for that reason but it's uh it's really awesome why i'm gonna get to do it so i Got an email from our crowdfunding platform that we raise money from, Gumroad. That's the how the BC Club is our financial yep. payment gateway there. And I got an email from them that says they're having a creator's dinner in Seattle for the Gumroad top 25 people in Seattle who use that and raise money for their creative stuff there. And so Bad Christian and the BC Club is in the top 25 of creators in Seattle that use that 
service, and they're throwing oh, a dinner awesome. for us. That's I thought rad. that was extremely cool. Get a babysitter, take Bridget to it. Oh, drinks, food. It's Finally, nice makes you look. You got a real job. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And then I get the follow up from there saying that particularly they were interested in me and would I mind speaking at it and telling our story oh. and how we use it and what, how we got here and whatever. So I can't really turn that down when I think about it on those terms because I I, understand, I know the story. I know the topic. and It is relevant, and I think I can speak to that without feeling like I'm some crazy person trying to push some agenda or preach. Well, that's the thing that always gets me about public speaking is it seems like it's too important, right. and I can't be that important. All I can do is fuck around and just – improvise and goof off with my thoughts I, I i've always had that barrier to like actually get up and say something but this i think i can do and i'm honored to, to give it a shot but still pretty terrified to do it i would be very nervous too i mean are, are, have, have you really planned out what you're going to say do you have point like bullet points and cards i, and I stuff? have a plan Doing, have you done it in the mirror no 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 i have a plan of how to do it uh it'll be i mean i know what uh, okay, so I work in story. I've been working in story a lot, and that's really helped me. So I'm going to use a story format the same way I think of a, a, a labeled podcast or a story I'm trying to tell or anything. So I'll have a point. I think I know what it is, and I'll know where the story beats are. And then the good thing about public speaking is the improvising and reading the room and stuff like that's the part that's easier for me. So the more I prepare, in some ways, it would work against me. So if I make a really good spine, have an armature, know what right. I'm trying to communicate, and then plan the seven points the way that I think of it I feel actually prepared after thinking that way since I got into storytelling focus for the last year or so I feel prepared to do it and I don't feel a ton of panic but I will say this is true I, I do feel scared of it people would find that funny because I'm a performer and I'm on stage a lot and I talk all the time but I think that that very thing about public speaking people say it's, the, it's their biggest fear behind snakes and people make the joke about that like it's like fear of dying or snakes is the number one and number two is public speaking you know that, and right. that's and i always and i just don't think that's funny i think that makes 100 percent sense because if you're public speaking evolutionarily that's the big time i mean you should be terrified to have a bunch of people looking at you and you have the important thing to say that you should have all their attention you're probably a tribe leader or there's a crisis and you're the guy in charge and you're about to tell people what to do or what's important and it's going to be life or death. Like you really yeah. want a whole, you know, you really want 80 people looking at you and you have their full attention. That That's significant. I mean, you better not mess that up and there's life and death consequences yeah. to it is the way I think our animal brains are built. So right. I, I, th- I think it's a very natural fear to be in that position. I mean, sounds terrifying. But right. hey, What about this intro for you? Hello, how's everyone doing? Thanks for having me here. Uh, as I was preparing for my talk tonight, I was sitting at my computer and accidentally spilled my beer. I guess I gave my computer the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll open it up with the corona related. Yuck, 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 yuck. You know that feeling. I mean, it's what, it's what comedians say. Please about walk bombing, up with but... one of those masks on your face. <laughs> be real because you hey you, you know i don't know if you've thought about this you probably have but everybody's going to be shocked at your accent you're in seattle oh, and know, you're here for a speech and they're like they got who what who's this Good guy lord they're gonna be they're gonna be shocked after the first 
four words that come out of your mouth, everyone's going to be captivated by yeah. what will come out. And they're like, uh-oh, he's about to say something. We've got Gumroad fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I won't be boring. And I know that about me is that if I go into some situation like this, I've committed to it. I won't be able to control the outcome. There will be variables that happen that will probably throw me very far off. And there's a great chance it'll go horrifically bad. I already accept that. I'm, I get... You know, I get in all kind of bad it situations. Yeah, this is low stakes. You're going to do great. You're and it'll be fine great. or it'll be hilarious. And I'll come back and tell you that how hilariously bad it went. And that I, that's a win for me, too. So either way, I can handle it. <laughs> that's the way I look at it. If I'm horribly humiliated, that's okay. I really think that's okay. I'll come back. I'll have a good story. I'll learn a lesson. Yeah. So I may be super underprepared, but I feel like I'm right in the sweet spot now. I'm not, I'm not scared. And I would have been scared previously, and I'm not. And that, that makes all the difference to me. So I feel good about it. Did but you thank call you your dad? to the BC Club and everybody else. It's pretty pretty cool that somebody else would notice our I know. story. And want to hear I'm, it. So uh, I'm that's amazing. I mean, that's I really decline cool. Decline on that on those grounds alone. So I know. Did you call your dad or anything? Say, so remember all those years ago? I left here and went to Seattle. Now I'm doing a speech in Seattle. That's what I wish I could tell my dad. My he, my dad's never really been impressed by anything. Um, I think my family's been impressed <laughs> by either. certain things, but after one or two times where you tell them something cool you've done, that's the, that's that, about all they can take. They're yeah. just not going to hear it over and over again if I get cool opportunities or something. So right. I don't I don't share them. There's at no all need to with my family or, or, or look for that. My dad was just my dad's more of the guy who thinks if you're going to meet with Brandon Ebel and talk about a record deal, you need a new suit. Right. That, that's really more the level my dad's on. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, hey, we got a great guest today, and I am uh, I'm nervous just because uh, Matt, you introduced me to Robin Hanson, and I started doing research on uh, on him, and I was like, oh my gosh, I knew I was in trouble. So he started out in physics, but he was like, eh, hey, maybe I should just move on to social science, and he was like, I'll get into, I'll be an economist. I'm like, oh my <laughs> god, and I thought economist was just like. Uh, putting your money in the envelopes, the Dave Ramsey thing. I saw. I was like, "Oh, Dave Ramsey's an economist." No, it's way more than that. <laughs> it's it's like unbelievable. Like he he is pre- prediction models and realizing how things are going to work out. So much so that he has. I mean, he's just a fascinating guy online, even. And uh, he he he's put out some really awesome. And maybe even controversial thoughts about the coronavirus and how we should handle it. And so I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but it's going to be really fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm ready to bring him on up if you are, Matt. Yes, I'm looking very forward to spending some time with Robin Hanson. Uh, But before we do, it's time for me to tell you that your furniture can match your fearless style. I know you might not have thought that before, but it's true. You can have custom furniture and it can suit your needs, but it can also feel uniquely you. And that's where Joybird comes in. I really, really like this company. They have endless customizable options. And that means the days of settling for whatever you can get or whatever you can find are over. One way to do it would be to start by going to Joybird's Instagram and you can get a, well, daily dose, let's say, of what's trending in their customers homes and that could be mid-century it could be modern boho whatever it is you can really scroll through on instagram and get the feel for the stuff and you'll be hooked they've got a weekly blog for tips and tricks for people that like to go deeper but the the point is you can bring your mood boards to life with hundreds of customizable pieces over 50 fabric and leather options three shades of wood and over 250 unique 
silhouette. So they've they've got it all. Joybird offers a range of kid and prep pet-friendly upholstery, and so your creations can stand the test of time or the wrath of your furry friends or those toddlers. They've got a great protection plan that keeps pieces looking as great as the day they came into your home. You can relax now, pay later with their financing options. Your rates could be as little as 0% APR for 18 months. They've got free personal design consultants to help you go from inspiration to creation, and each Joybird produced piece is made with the ultimate care and precision is real wood and without all those harmful chemicals and it's responsibly sourced materials. There's a 365-day trial. You can skip the furniture store and bring the showroom to you. You create furniture that matches your own fearless style at joybird.com slash badchristian25. You can see how Joybird can help make your dream space a reality today at joybird.com slash badchristian25. Go to joybird.com slash badchristian25 and receive an exclusive offer for 25% off your first order. Again, the code badchristian25. How come you don't have a podcast? Why, why do you? Well, that's a lumpy commitment. I, I was tempted to do it. And I, can tell you, I can even tell you what my philosophy would be if I was going to do one. Please what do. What the theme would be. But I see that so many people are into that. And I see they're doing a decent job. And I figured that's not my specialty. You know, my, the thing I'm best at is like thinking about things and coming up with original ideas and perspectives and then communicating them. And that's not what you do as a podcast interviewer. <laughs> Your job mm-hmm. isn't to come up with the original concepts and ideas. Your your job is to help other people understand them or to riff off of them or, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's, it's good that there are people who are good at that. And that's not me. But well, and if you, <laughs> well, let me give you a compliment for a minute. I was just looking all over the internet to find more information about you. And the, there was just a, it, it seemed like only a handful of videos. But I was like, man, every interview, I just thought, I wish the interviewer wasn't there. I just want to hear more from Robin. Like, it, <laughs> well, that really is true. I, I'm not just blowing okay. smoke up the ass. So that, that might be really a problem. True. So my concept of, of a podcast, if I were to do it, would be, say, deep dive. The theme would be, you come onto my podcast with a claim. Oh, and it's so not good. about you and your personality and your life. You have a claim, and we're going to deep dive into that claim, and I'm going to do everything I can to, like, knock you down and to tear it in. Mm. Part. We're going to get into that claim and see what kind of support you have for it. Because I think, like, when I listen to people, I go, the interviewer is not challenging them enough. They're just, right, like, right. letting them get away with shit. Like, <laughs> I want someone that, to dive in. And <laughs> so you welcome that that idea to be taken by other people. You think it's a good Absolutely. idea? Would you yeah, mind so, if I attempt it? No, no, of course not. Of course, okay. I, I love it. it so I love it. Just because, giving people – one of my favorite – I promise you, I was laughing out loud, Robin. It was so great. I found a, uh, a clip of you with John Stossel. And you were uh, talking. Yeah. You were talking about uh, that blackmail should be legal, right? Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and the points you, they don't. They only gave you so much time. You're not really getting to. But you nailed it. And the things that you said were so concise and so right. My favorite part, and this is why I started laughing out loud, is the audience had no clue how to react because they agreed with you. But it was like, wait a minute. Does the person beside me agree? Am I going to look bad right. if I'm like, yeah, that blackmail right. is good? Like your point was so <laughs> it was such a strong point, and nobody the the audience was almost uh, uh, quiet. Well, I I love those things. I, I like I like these insights that once you see them, they're kind of obvious, but apparently everybody else doesn't want to accept that or doesn't like the appearance of accepting that. I love to dive into those things and see how far you can go. Oh, I know it, it was, I was so watch- funny. I was watching an interview with you recently, and you said something about people not taking information well from a neutral analyzer and also that 
the opposite of that would be preaching. And then you also said something about preaching's not always bad. And then the interview moved on. So yeah. could you could you engage us there for a minute on your thoughts on what preaching is and why people have a hard time taking truth from a neutral analyzer? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, to think about it a bit, it, it's tough. So, I mean, clearly in, in some sense, people don't just want neutral information. They care about their presentation in the world. So as long as there's any sort of moral or norm color to something, their first priority is to make sure they are well defended in the sense that they can't be accused of being immoral or being, you know, violent norms. So uh, people are very wary as soon as you get to any sort of subject with a moral color that they might be tricked into or accidentally offend people or be evil by what they mm -hmm. say, right? And so uh, that's one way to deal with that is just to shut it off. And another is to, is to look at the speaker and, and decide, is this one of my allies? Do I really trust this person? Or do I have enough signals that this guy is really in my team, my camp on enough sides that I can, if I, if I just go along with what they say, is that going to risk me being seen as evil, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's from the listener's point of view. They're concerned about that. Now, when you're preaching, you're going to take on that role of an audience, you know, of the sort that the audience might trust enough to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes, you know, people from their own side, from people they agree with morally, they still sometimes can be reminded of things pushed into things they might not otherwise do that they might then like be grateful for. And that's what you get when you go to a preacher, basically. You, when and, you go to a preacher, you kind of expect them to agree with you at the at the big level, but you might expect them to to push you on a specific thing you hadn't you'd forgotten about or that is important to you. And then by their preaching, you are pushed to do something you wouldn't otherwise do, and you might appreciate that. I think that's a good definition, Toby. Does that one work for you on preaching? Uh, yeah, I guess y'all <laughs> y'all already talking over my head here a little bit, but <laughs> but I, yeah, it, it's funny you you were talking about. I, I really appreciated. Um, I guess you would say it's a theory where you're talking about the farmer or the uh, how, farmer how, and foragers, yeah, farmer and forager, and uh, I just I really appreciate that because I grew up very very conservative Christian, and so there, there was just one one line of thought, and uh, you know we've had other guests on, and I've said this as well. You would have been considered a very dangerous person, right? Which I actually still believe that I do have a theory, but I was, when I, after listening to so much and reading so much about you, I was like you really could be the if you wanted to you could be so dangerous to the world <laughs> i mean I, I don't i don't even know how you how you would actually judge that but i was just thinking if you wanted to could you you probably could even come up with some model that looks right that almost proves god in some way a little tiny thing and then you would immediately catapult yourself into being the most important Christian in the world, and then you would win the presidency from that standpoint, and then you could influence everything that you wanted to do. I, was, I, I mean, you could probably follow that path if you wanted to. I mean, only for a very small minority of people. <laughs> so like in this last presidential primary, uh, people noticed that among elites, they a lot of their friends liked Warren, and they couldn't understand why Warren's losing so much. Yeah. And of course, the story is, well, your friends are weird. <laughs> Right. You know, she's much more of an intellectual academic type like you and, and giving explicit arguments and rationales. And that appeals to people like you, but not to a thing. And she has vastly more appeal than I do. So I could be persuasive to a much smaller set of people. And then perhaps indirectly, they might persuade other people. But, uh, you know, I would really have this very small audience. 
See, I don't think so because I think that the okay. What about this? If you were nefarious and intent and dishonest, yes. though, you would be able to calculate how people would respond and use that. Moral yeah, I'm saying you would have to lie. Knowledge. But if you just did a little <laughs> tiny lie and made a model that looked like there there was a god, you not you don't even have to say. I, I, I'm 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 making the, you know obviously you wouldn't want to do this for some reason you have some morality about lying or not lying to the general public but. Uh, people who believe in something is a large majority, uh, uh, even just in America. They believe that there is some some God, but they don't really have. They can't don't have real data on it. If you showed some way that there was some data that yes, it wasn't just the Big Bang. There was a creator. Just that you would immediately become one of the most por- important people in America, and people would <laughs> believe you. They would believe you more readily. I'm, I'm not actually sure our world uh, having believing in God is that potent an idea. Uh, so, so the major alignments have shifted since then in some sense. So, so for our listeners, the forager farmer story says that once upon a time, we lived as foragers for a million or two million years. As foragers, we were in tune with our environment. Uh, we evolved, and the thing that felt natural to us to do was roughly the right thing to do. And then when farming became possible, it was only possible because we had enough cultural plasticity to be able to form new norms and use self-control and social pressure to get us to adopt a new set of values and a new set of behaviors that were appropriate for the farming world. Mm -hmm. And so farmers just have a whole bunch of different values and they use a lot more self-control to make themselves feel like those are the right values. And so traditional religious, you know, worlds are more of a farmer world. So the traditional forager world was egalitarian, uh, not f- planning very far ahead, relatively sexually promiscuous. Uh, you didn't really own much material wealth. There weren't classes. You didn't fight wars. You didn't even trade much. And then with the farming world, now we had war. We had uh, class inequality. We had slavery. We had uh, long-distance trade. We had marriage. We had property and high degrees of inequality and self-control and the sense that, you know, your self-respect in the community was heavily dependent on you embracing the farmer values, acting in the farmer way. Mm-hmm. And um, that's very different than the forager way. And so in some sense, my, my story is that with the Industrial Revolution, as we got rich, all the pressures that had turned us into farmers got weaker. And so many of us have been drifting back toward forager values mm-hmm. and that this explains increasing democracy, leisure, promiscuity, travel, um, you know, a lot of the features of the modern world and sort of the left liberal side of values compared to the more conservative side of values is roughly becoming more forager-like. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So that that's similar to some of the idea in the book Sapiens. He, he outlines that is where I was first exposed to that hunter-gatherer versus the agrarian kind of thing. Is it then that, that the God concept is very valuable once you get into agriculture then? Well, so foragers have spirituality, which is a little different from religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, the key thing over time that became with the strong farmer religion was that there was this moralizing God who would punish you for deviating from the farmer values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was a strong force to help people go along with the new farmer values to add to the other kind of conformity pressures, et cetera, that were there. And uh, that worked. And so in some I have this book, Age of M, about the future, and I think that religion will continue long into the future as long as our descendants continue to need social pressures to get them to act in ways that are weird compared to their distant ancestors. 
So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we've, so, you know, in the modern era, a lot of the rapid change in values has, I think, been induced by wealth. But the proximate cause people often say is, well, yes, that's the way we always did things. But look inside yourself, Luke, <laughs> like in the Star Wars. Right. What do you feel? What feels natural to you? What feels right? And of course, that's been the more forager way. You know, mm-hmm. looking inside yourself, I don't want to work so hard. I don't want to stay with the same person all my life in terms of sex. I don't, I don't want to have to go fight a war. <laughs> if you look inside yourself, you don't necessarily want to do all the things the farmer world wants you to do. And the farmer world wants you to feel ashamed of for not doing. Mm-hmm. So once I see this dichotomy, I'm not all on the forager side. <laughs> to me, the, the most dramatic thing to realize is that over the long run, the environments we will move to are, will just be different from the environments our ancestors grew up in. And there will mm-hmm. be need for social pressures and social flexibility in order to create new habits of behavior appropriate to the new worlds we're going to live in. Now, temporarily, we're in what I've called the dream time, this era where we're so rich that we can more ignore the various pressures on us and the needs for, you know, efficient behavior and competition, et cetera. And we can just relax and uh, enjoy our world and our lives because we're so rich, but that won't last forever. Eventually, you think this this is a nice golden window we're in right now. Yeah. So that's the the idea of the dream time. We are in this good times where from our ancestors and our descendants point of view, we're weird. Like our ancestors and our descendants, both of them, were people living in very competitive worlds where basically what they did had to sort of be the thing that needs to do to to win in their competition. Now, for our dissident forager ancestors, they didn't have to think that through. They didn't have to use as much self-control because what came naturally was roughly the right thing to do. But into the distant future, our descendants will live in very different and strange worlds compared to our ancestors, and they will need to behave in ways that are different in order to win there. And they will therefore need these resources of uh, self-control value, conformity pressure, religion, et cetera, like in the farmer world, to get them to be functional and win in their new world. Technological overlays as well, and integrations, obviously, being a big one. Uh, well, obviously, to the extent people can use technology to shape their behavior, they will do that as well. But that's actually so far been pretty limited. It's funny when I was listening to you previously say that you, you made some, it seems almost like we will create a God that we need at, at whatever time that we need it. Is that kind of what you're saying? And you can back it up because you said like a single mom during this farming period, you know, she was looked at, don't do that because you could literally die or you won't be taken care of or right. you'll be a burden. So they could back it up with, hey, don't have sex outside of marriage. That's looked down on. Get your man, get your family together or else right. God will right. be mad so at this, you. The story is to say that during the farming era, poverty was a big proximate cause to getting you to go along with farmer norms. So like take a young woman who's tempted to have sex out of marriage, that farming world teller, well, if you have sex out of marriage and you have a child out of marriage, you and that child might starve because you're poor and there isn't that much support here and you will be an outcast. And that's a credible threat and it kept people going along. And so the idea is as we've gotten rich over the last few centuries, now that same young woman looks and says, yeah, so, you know, maybe he won't marry me. So other people might disapprove. In this world, I see lots of women. They do okay that way. Right. They have children by themselves and they survive and the children grows up and they're, you know, and so that threat of, if you don't do what we all tell you, think terrible things will happen has become much weaker because we're rich. So um, your, your ability or qualification to speak on things and think about things like this is from the lens of an economist. Is that the, how you would explain that? Well, 
I am a professor of economics, um, but I have more just seen myself as a scholar and for a long time tried to study whatever I thought were the most important, interesting topics. But in order to have a home where I have a job and, and colleagues, I found my best shot was to be get become a tenured professor of economics. Why economics, though? You started in physics and stuff like that. Exactly. So um, I have been in many different areas, and uh, I know about a lot of different areas. But if you're like me, tempted to be very broad in general, uh, if you pick, say, chemistry, there's just a lot of topics you can't do and call it chemistry. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But a lot more topics, you can kind of find an econ angle on them. Mm -hmm. okay. It allows you to sort of cover a wider range of things and still call it economics rather than other, a more narrow, like geology. I mean, there's only so many things you can do and call it geology. If you're a geologist, even if you're tenured, that you, there's a bunch of things you could do. And they, your colleagues would say, that's not geology. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's harder for a geologist to, to cover multiple things. Okay, you know, almost a coronavirus here, but I want to trace this line from there. You said that you wanted to cut, you selected economics because you wanted to cover important and interesting things. So exactly. that part to me is really, really fascinating because in the, we're in a lot age of more narrow experts now, which to me sounds like the, the farmer type of thing. And I think there's a lot of missed opportunity to put concepts together. Um, how do you balance interest and importance then? How do you, what's your ratio there of what you want to cover? Well, I don't think, I mean, I think those are almost synonyms for me. Something is interesting because it's important because mm -hmm. it's a big deal. It could affect a lot of people. It could affect a huge future. It could really change how you think about big, important things. Um, so, but as you say, the rewards in our world are for being specialists. So mm -hmm. uh, the trade-off is, do I do a specialist thing and then get the kind of rewards you can get for that by getting colleagues who say, yes, you're a good person, do good things and uh, get, you know, journal publications and invited to conferences and, and, you know, funding rewards, or do you move over to areas that you feel are more important and easier to make progress on yet won't give you those rewards. Mm -hmm. And so then it's a trade-off between, you know, if, if you work in the important things, then it'll be harder to get people to listen to you, but maybe eventually people will, and that'll matter more. And that's kind of the trade-off, you know, in a sense, working on something and then making progress there, but then nobody ever hears you or ever builds on it. That to me is a fail scenario. Mm -hmm. That's the thing to, to worry about is, there are many big, important, neglected problems in the world that you could just dive into and make real progress on. But the risk is when you have an answer, when you have an insight, you might be able to write it up such that if somebody read it, they would nod and say, yes, you're right. That's important. And you have convinced me of your new position. But that doesn't mean they will remember that yeah, or that right. anybody later or will ever find it. it or do anything with it. Or pay you and for so, it or anything like that. Right. Well, so as a tenured professor, I don't have to worry so much about being paid for it. But I do have to worry about whether anybody will ever listen. And so okay. that to me is the trade-off to stay on the edge of getting big and important enough things that they matter, but not so far away from where everybody else is that I can't talk to somebody and convince them that what I've found is interesting and important. Excellent. And so you have obviously the ability, you do have the ability to specialize in a thing and make a bunch more money. And you've selected a basic subsistence level of money as a college professor in trade for freedom intellectually. A tenured professor isn't rich, but it's comfortable. And mm -hmm. I have all this freedom to study all these interesting things. So I feel myself very lucky. I, I mean, 
it's bad for the world that there are all these very important po- topics that are so neglected that somebody like me with a relatively small amount of effort can make enormous progress on them. That's just a terrible shame. <laughs> I mean, I a rational I world of intellectuals wouldn't let that happen. They would be yes. all over the important things, and then it would be really hard for me to just pick up a, a neglected thing and make progress. I would okay, be forced well that... to specialize, but we don't live in that world. We live in this world where lots of big, important things really are neglected, such that I can really yes. make progress. So okay. that's fun for me and sad for the world. <laughs> fun for you. I love everything about what you're saying. I feel so wonderful about the setup of this. All right, fellas, let's take a quick break. And I just want to talk about stamps.com. I love stamps.com. Seriously. Don't you wish you were at the post office right now? No, me neither. Running a business or keeping up with your schedule takes a lot. And seriously, sometimes there just aren't enough hours in the day. You've got better and more important things to do. So that's why you need Stamps.com. Anything that you can do at the post office, you can do at Stamps.com. Their on-demand postage means you can skip that trip to the post office. Plus, you can save money. Everybody loves saving money. I love saving money. That's one of my favorite things about Stamps.com. You save money. They have awesome discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller, shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. Seriously, folks, time isn't the only thing you'll be saving, though. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp, and that's up to 40% off and up to 40% off shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. I remember using those never again. So right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Bad Christian. That's Stamps.com, enter Bad Christian. And then we get to coronavirus all of a sudden where you... Well, so we can con- we can connect coronavirus to this forager farmer thing temporarily. Okay. Like before we and get your interest and it. its importance right. and the exactly. fun of it, which is I can't believe all those things converge in this one spot. So this is the perfect opportunity to introduce <laughs> you to to everybody I know. So, so there's this literature that suggests that societies that suffered diseases more often were more politically conservative. Which makes they're more wary of strangers. They're more wary of contact mm-hmm. with outsiders. Which makes sense in a world where there's more disease. Uh, so now that we're about to face a big disease, uh, that issue comes up in the sense of our conservative versus liberal resources for dealing with something like that. Uh, it's related to like the World Health Organization just recently put out some statements, which they've had other things before, saying. Don't blame anybody for this. That's terrible. Don't stigmatize anyone. Uh, And they bring up the story from like the AIDS epidemic where AIDS patients, if they were stigmatized, then maybe they won't get tested. Maybe they won't report it, things like that. And that's kind of a a liberal resource, a way to think about uh, how to deal with the pandemic is to think, let's all be inclusive and let's all like have some central government services that checks it, makes sure everybody gets tested and does coordination, Uh, you know, but there's also this more conservative set of resources about how to deal with a pandemic, which are all about, well, no, you, you as a person in a family, you need to be careful. You need to be cautious about uh, who you interact with and who you trust and what sort of access you let other people get into your lives. Yeah. 
and um, shame, uh, stigma, blame. Those mm -hmm. are like important things that humans have used <laughs> all through history to manage risks of contact with people. And we may be tempted to move more back to using those things in facing mm -hmm. this sort of a problem. And in, in such ways, unfortunately, it's obviously true that a shortcut or heuristic for that could even be something like skin color, for instance. That that could be. Sure, of course. You could see how that would, could be useful and then what the problem is. Yeah, temporarily, arise. at least. I mean, mm -hmm. it's probably not going to be useful much longer. <laughs> that was yeah, probably only so, useful for a month or two. Mm -hmm. And because we're new, you know, now we're in a phase where you could be infected by someone from Italy or Iran or mm -hmm. South Korea or, you know, Germany. I mean, the, the, those ethnic markers are going to be not very useful pretty soon. Well, I found you to be one of the people talking about it in very different and unique ways the earliest. And I don't know if that was of your own thing or what, how, how this arose to a level of fascination or importance or entertainment for you. And I, I don't know if those are all blurred or not, <laughs> but I could not stop laughing when you were posting about the uh, intentional infection, when you made the post about the intentional right. infection and then the subsequent uh, projections and polls about the numbers and then the betting and then you taking people's bets online right. and actually taking bets on this thing in a time when it was so, it seemed to be so against the taboos of, and everybody seemed to be so angry at you for behaving that way. And I could only sit back and think, yeah, but this is all on purpose for some reason that Robin's calculated that this is the type of obnoxious information that people need to encounter for some reason. And I just really dying to know what the strategy is on ruffling so many feathers so early in those particular ways that you did. I was just, I thought found it right. so entertaining. So, I mean, I am someone who can turn on a dime more intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. I, I I don't have a big institute behind me. I haven't committed to multi-year projects, that sort of thing. So when a new thing comes up, I am unusually able to just turn on to it and, you know, put fresh thought into it and, and maybe move in a way that other people couldn't move quickly. Um, so that's one reason to just jump on a thing like this is because, hey, I can't. Uh, another thing is that I'm more of a theorist. And so uh, as my colleague Tyler Cowan talked about in his recent post, with respect to things like that, like some people are more analytic theorists and other people are what he calls base raiders. And they just go on like, this thing hardly ever happens. So this is probably not a thing either. And they don't really want to look into the details or the, or the statistics or something. They just want to sort of go on base rates in terms of like, this isn't a deal. So to me, when I looked at the details, I said, we have strong enough theory about epidemiology and the numbers here are solid enough that I can predict that this is going to be a big deal. And clearly, like most people were not reacting that way. And so that was my stance for is theory. This January but, or when was yeah, this? Yeah, early February. Okay. Uh, my, my stance as a theorist is to say, like, we have good enough theory here that, look, I can tell you, <laughs> you're neglecting a big thing. And so that's a thing I like to do in lots of different areas as intellectual is to take, to take presumptions people have and say, no, we've got strong enough theory that says that's wrong. And let me explain that theory to you. And then what often happens is a conflict then between people's just intuitive presumptions and, and the base rate statistics and this weird thing you claim you have, you know, evidence for that somebody would have to think through and they usually go, but I don't want to think that through. And how can I be sure of each part of your analysis? And I just don't trust you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is a nice case of that where I could look at the numbers and go, no, guys, this is going to be big. I, it's pretty clear. There's not much that can stop this. And so I wanted to like 
take that on and go with that because I, that's often one of the advantages I think I have intuitively is to be able to know a bunch of theory and to know which theory is reliable and then be able to take the reliable theory and just go with it and say, here's the consequence. Let's, let's face it. Mm -hmm. Now there's a related part of that, which is another obstacle in the world for people accepting like the consequence of our theory is that when people have these moral um, colors or sort of rules in their head that, that these other things violate. So I've gotten into trouble in the past, just making sort of abstract analysis commentary on something. And then people think that sounds too close to violating a moral norm of theirs. And then they complain about it and tell them I'm evil or something like that. So because of that sort of thing, a lot of things, just people just back off and won't go near those topics. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely someone who's decided, no, I'm going to be willing to go near those topics. Yeah. I'll take that chance. Uh, you won't take the chance. I'll, I'll specialize in taking that chance. I'm a tenured professor. What I got to lose that much. And mm-hmm. I will go there and try to think those through. So that was part of the attraction of the deliberate infection or deliberate exposure sort of analysis, which is uh-huh. to say it's, it was clear from reactions that people thought, well, that's just terrible. Nobody should even be considering that. Yeah. And when if you people, want to explain that a little bit, the, the way I absolutely. took it at least was that, and this was way, way early on, where people are like, oh, there's Chinese people have a sickness, but they're going to have to quarantine them or something. That was, the way it was only were. like two weeks ago, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it seems <laughs> right. like a long time ago. Right? <laughs> and, and, but people were just thinking of it like, oh, that Ebola thing that time or something. It clearly is the right. way people were, were behaving. And you were saying, the, the, the way that people compare it to the Ebola is weird because they were thinking of I, – I perceived everybody as thinking of the disease as much worse than it is, but the chance of them getting it much lower than it was. That's the kind of the way that I saw. I said, oh, this is going to creep up on people because they're just thinking about it wrong, it seems. I couldn't really figure out why, um, but it felt funny to me. And then you, you said that back <laughs> – that you made a – argument that we might should set up or it could be useful to set up voluntary voluntary infection points everywhere and maybe even pay people to take the disease early to not overwhelm the medical system eventually. And at that time, nobody had processed it too much, and they just thought that was just some pure evil thing that you would do to subject people to torture or pay poor people to get a disease. This is the way that people seem to take it. But it was really something that would be addressing what would be one of the major problems that the secondary damage would come from overwhelming medical, but people were were so vitriolically angry at you for that, and you seemed happy to provoke them, which is what I found the most funny part. Well, I'm not going to back down as I want to, <laughs> you know, I'm, or apologize when I don't think it deserves apology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, I mean, a lot of these things is like people get stuck in a mindset about how they think about things. And then there's this more fundamental way to think about things. And then people, they don't often bother to check whether the more fundamental way of thinking about things, the predictions there, the recommendations match the simple perception. So in disease, the simple perception we all have is the obvious thing to do is for each one of us is to try to prevent getting each disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we, we try not to catch diseases and catching diseases is bad. And that, usually is also a good thing to do at the larger social level. So for any one of us, of course, we don't want to get sick. We don't want to die. Not getting infected is the way to do that. And even when there's a new disease, um, the first right strategy is to try to contain it, i.e. to keep it from spreading, to lock it down, and to basically kill it off so that it doesn't move very far. And that has often worked. And that's also in the form, like, stop people from getting infected, except you're focusing on the people right next to the people who are infected and trying to make sure nobody else gets infected right? And of course, uh, if this thing was growing very slowly, then we have this great 
pharmaceutical world that can make vaccines and things. And then you might think, well, that we still want to slow things down until the point where a vaccine develops. That was kind of the story of the movie Kent, 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 Contagion. The, the win in that movie was, well, eventually the heroic scientists developed the vaccine and they spread it out. And that was the thing that saved everything, right? So th those all make sense. But we're in now this somewhat unusual situation. It's not that unusual in history, but unusual in the last century, which is we've got a disease. It is really infectious. It's really hard to contain. It is growing very fast. And there's pretty much not much of a prospect of a vaccine or something within, you know, a year and a half, two years, et cetera. And that's optimistic. So this is doubling every week when it's even modestly trying to contain it doubles every week. And so that if you do the numbers, then that puts you, you know, in six months at like most of the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in that scenario, the problem is everybody gets sick all at once. Mm -hmm. And so the economy collapses and the medical system's overwhelmed. And instead of the modest death rate you have when you've got the full support of the medical system, you have much higher death rates because you're all alone at home, barely able to get food and water. Mm -hmm. And you don't have other medical resources. Mm -hmm. So that's, of course, an unusual situation today. Again, through most of history, they, people suffered plagues and these things happened, but they didn't usually have that much medical resources, so that didn't matter so much. Uh, so for us today, the key thing is, how can we spread out who gets infected when so that we aren't all doing it at the same time so that the medical resources can be there for us? Mm -hmm. um, now... If you have a growth rate of doubling every week and say, instead of doubling every seven days, you have a double every eight days, slow it down a little bit. You still, you know, you know, maybe six and a half months until it hits everybody. You haven't um, really, you know, saved people in, this, in that sense, but still near the peak, it'll be slightly spread out. And that's good. That, that actually is very good. Mm -hmm. So on average, slowing it down a bit for everybody is still a good thing, but there's other good things we could do. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did this, put up this post yesterday, two posts, I don't know if you saw, where I, I did a little math model where in, in Excel, where I showed two interesting features. One is if you have the population divided into two subsets, one of which has a higher rate of getting infected than the other, then that also spreads it out over time and reduces mortality, reduces deaths. And the other thing I show is that if you take some people and just purposely infect them early on, but you combine that with quarantining them so that they are much less likely to spread it to others, that's also a win mm -hmm. because you're, you're, you're having those people be treated again earlier when there's more medical resources. And it's even better if you can get medical personnel and critical resource workers to be in that early pool. Cause now later on, they're not sick and out of, right. uh, out of pocket. <laughs> So it'd be like infect, voluntarily pay, infect, and quarantine even doctors and medical people so that they'll be better prepared. And the later. people who work in the power plants and, you know, making the buses go, et cetera. Right. Right. All those people. So the analysis suggests that makes sense. Now, you know, there's a lot of doubts perhaps. And so, it, you know, it's important for me to mention, you know, as theorists, we work in the abstract world of theory, which isn't reality. It's tries to be close enough to reality to be useful, but we know it's not exactly equal to reality. So we always have to think about, okay, given a certain set of assumptions, this makes sense, but what 
other what what how could those assumptions be wrong maybe such that it, this would go badly mm -hmm. and so i'm happy to to walk that sort of analysis with anybody and mm -hmm. try to you know make those considerations but you know the most obvious interesting high level thing here is first you know a lot of people just reacted very negatively <laughs> right. in terms no of like about this it. is just yeah. evil yeah evil they just think yeah. you're right. evil yeah right and, and of course i'm not talking about necessarily forcing people to be infected you could offer money and take the ones who volunteered but people even thought that was evil uh, because they thought poor people would be more likely to do it but of course you could make you know if you're hiring doctors for example they're not that many poor doctors right. uh because for they're not you know etc if you're if you're doing by their qualifications for some particular line of work then uh, they're not necessarily going to be poor and of course we we do hire some people for work based on the willingness to do the work to take the money that's kind of how the labor market works mm -hmm. um but the other interesting thing is like looking into trying to look into the professional literature i just couldn't find any discussion of this which makes me worry that the world of public health just you know has blinders on and it won't look out the side of a certain scope of options because there's you know the same sort of moral uh flags go up for people in that profession too and that's something i'm worried about about public health now because public health matters more now right mm -hmm. <laughs> when they were just messing with stuff and there wasn't a big pandemic well you know they were kind of mostly practicing but now that there's a real thing it matters whether they're actually looking at all the options and they're you're saying that they're still to this day you don't think they are and and if so what do you think they're optimized for other than maximum you know effect here well um there's it's a social science so um th there's two, two two strikes going against them in some sense uh one is that in general in social science we have the problem that ordinary people care a lot about social science claims and statements and that makes it harder for social science to just be objective uh because you know all the people who are social scientists they also have these internalized you know senses of what they would like to believe and they, their audiences and their funders also have those, you know, things they want to believe. And so it makes it harder for the social scientists to contradict them, to say, but no, our analysis says this other different thing. And then furthermore, medicine is this area where we are just not at all very action oriented or realistic. So mm -hmm. I have this book, The Elephant in the Brain, which we might talk about at some point here. And that's about how the subtitle is Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, which is about how we aren't actually very honest with ourselves about our motives for various things in our world. And one of those things is medicine. And that's one of the most surprising things to, to most people who read my book is the claim and the evidence we offer that people think they go to the doctor in the hospital in order to get well and not to get sick. And that's the rationale they give. And most social scientists who study medicine just take that as the initial presumption and go from there. But it, doesn't actually seem to be true. There's a bunch of things we know about the medical world that don't fit this very well. And we suggest a better explanation, we being myself and my co-author, Kevin Simler, a better explanation is that people mainly use medicine as a way they show they care, a way to signal their concern about people and to let other people yeah, signal their concern about them. And mm -hmm. so the medical profession has been set up by that incentive all along, as is medical social scientists, epidemiologists, which means that we're all sort of looking away and not being honest about the main motives and the main processes going on here. Can, can you expand on that just a hair? Like when you say you just use medicine to care, you, you mean it's not actually to heal? It's, oh, go, just <laughs> let's go. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, first of all, um, 
when we look at things that correlate with people being healthy or sick, we see a lot of big correlations like air pollution, uh, exercise, um, smoking, um, you know, sleep, nutrition, uh, social status. But when you talk about to people about improving their health by changing these correlates, they usually get bored really fast and they don't very interested. If you, you can tell people, look, if you exercise more, you'll probably be healthier. And they go, yeah, I get it. Yeah. They're not gonna care. <laughs> okay. But when you get to medicine and you talk about things that medicine can do with respect, people are all over that. They really care a lot emotionally and it's really matters to them, but we see almost don't no correlation between medicine and health. Yet people are much, much more passionate about it. And that should make a suspicion that is when we look at regions where people spend more in medicine or nations where they spend more in medicine, et cetera, those places aren't actually healthier. But when we have, we have some randomized experiments where we actually took some people and we gave them money that they could spend on medicine and said, you know, here, go get more medicine if you want it. And in those cases, those people did get more medicine. And then the, the what we found is that they were not healthier. Mm-hmm. And so that there's almost no correlation between medicine and health. And I say almost no because people <laughs> will dispute the small correlation. But whatever correlation there is, it's really small compared to the other big things we see with the other things we know about in health. So that's this right on the face of it, big puzzle. And another big puzzle is when you show people information about the effectiveness of medical treatments, they're just not interested and they don't act on it. Now, yeah. You might find that surprising because you think people are oh, they were really worried and they go on the internet and try to find things, but that's really a tiny fraction of people. Most people... They want to go to their doctor, have the doctor tell them what to do, and they just want to do it, and they don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so people are remarkably uninterested in information about the quality of medical treatment. Now, mm. so our story is to say that medicine is, in fact, like Valentine's chocolate. So as you know, we have this tradition on Valentine's of buying your loved one some chocolate. Now, when you do that, you have a choice of how much chocolate to buy, and you also have a cho- choice of what brand or quality of chocolate to buy. So we'd say when you decide how much chocolate to buy, you don't ask how hungry they are. Now, you know, on the surface, chocolate is to eat and you don't eat it if you're not hungry, right? But uh, that's not what we do. We'd buy as much chocolate as it takes to show that we care more about somebody who who doesn't care as much as we do. Yeah. You bought two chocolates, no matter how good they are, they're going to go, two chocolates, come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Regardless of their hunger level. Right, right, right. Right, right. And when you think about the quality to buy, you realize that because it's a gift, what matters is the commonly perceived quality. So if everybody in your world thinks C's chocolate is the best chocolate, it doesn't matter if you think C's is crap, or it doesn't matter if they think C's is crap privately, they'll, they'll still you give, give you the credit for having done the usual thing to give you what everybody thinks is the high quality chocolate. And that's what you will do regardless of what you think privately. And so mm-hmm. the analogies to medicine here are that in medicine, we supposedly give medicine to help their health, but what we really are doing is just showing that we care. And so we have to give as much medicine as it takes to, to hurt so that to show that we care more than somebody else. So that's why medicine, the amount we spend on medicine actually is, has been increasing faster than income for a long time. The more richer we got, the even more we spend on medicine. We have a keeping up with the Joneses effect. When you move from one country to another, if the new country is richer, you end up spending more on medicine there, even if you're the same person, same health, everything else. And uh, when you pick the quality of medical treatment, again, it's about that common perception. You don't care about anything you learn privately about the quality of medicine or anything they know privately about the quality of medicine. What matters is this common perception. Oh, they're from John Hopkins, must be good. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so we actually have randomized, we have actually experiments where we took people who were about to undergo heart surgery. We gave them actual personal information about the different surgeons in their area and their death rates. And they just were not interested. <laughs> Only 8% were willing to pay 50 bucks. And when we gave them the information, they just couldn't care and didn't listen. And this is just pretty typical. People don't actually want information about the quality of medical treatment. They just want to trust it. But you could say that even expand that obviously farther if it's something as important as medicine and say, and this gets to the birth, the the base rate and growther type thing there, which is people don't want information if they seem to not want the information that will help them or they're afraid of it or think they can't understand it or something like that, or they don't trust it. Somehow. Well, I guess the way I'd say it is there are a lot of topics where your beliefs on the topic affect how other people think about you and their social incentives are in your world stronger than the more concrete action incentives. It's certainly mm-hmm. true in politics, right? Uh, your opinions about politics will hardly affect how, who gets elected or how the government treats you, but it will affect how the people around you treat you. They mm-hmm. care about your politics. So you have much stronger incentives to please the people around you with your politics than you do to make the world, the country a better place. Okay. And similarly in medicine, if, because it's this gift, if I say to my family, well, you know, I found out medicine isn't very effective, so we're just not going to get much. Yeah. <laughs> then my family <laughs> might think I'm a cruel, uncaring person yeah, right. and they will treat me differently for the cruel, uncaring person that I am. So I kind of have to give them the medicine everybody expects to get because that's what shows that I care about them, even if I think it's a waste. Which is why I go to the emergency room and Toby takes our, his kids to the emergency room nonstop for what he knows to be no reason at all, right? Right, because right. what you know, if, if your wife says, "Aren't yeah. you concerned about your kid?" What are you supposed to say? No, I don't care about my kid. I'm gonna, I'm too, I'm busy playing video games. What? Right. You know, no. Right. Or you, I you care about my money care. more than my kid. You can't say that either. Right. So that's what's going on in, in medicine to a substantial part. And now many people notice that, like some people buy medicine for themselves, and they say, "Well, how does your social theory that we're buying medicine to show that we care predict what somebody does for themselves when they buy their own medicine?" So I ask you to consider what happens to somebody on Valentine's Day when they don't have someone who gives them chocolate. Well, they might buy some chocolate for themselves and leave it on the desk at work. Yeah. Why? Because we all want to seem to be the sort of person who's cared for. <laughs> and that we get the, whatever treatment that people who are loved get. Right. And they the might not even like loved, chocolate. <laughs> right. But you don't want to... You wanted the option to refuse the chocolate. The fact right. that nobody ever offered it to you, that would be an insult. Right. Mm-hmm. And the same for medicine. When when you are sick and feeling stressed, you want to know that you have access to the medicine that other people have access when they're sick and stressed so that you feel cared for. I think even going back to what we were talking about with Corona, is, is it a little bit too that uh, the people, the same as like I was saying earlier when you were on John Stossel, People want to seem like they're caring, so they they go the re, their immediate response to you saying give people the coronavirus is uh, they they jump immediately, and this would be something I would even do if I was just cruising around on Twitter or something. You want to hurt people, you want to kill people. That they they jump to the the biggest extreme right. of it when you're not even talking about death necessarily. You're talking about the things that would actually lead to death outside of the virus. So there's two things going on here to separate, but they're both interesting. So the first is like in the initial situation where some people were worried about the coronavirus, but most people weren't, people were more concerned about looking stupider like a fool, like a weirdo than they were about the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So their initial pressures are about 
you know, it's weirdos and wackos and extremists who are worried about this. And I'm a reasonable, concerned, ordinary person. And the authorities tell me not to be worried. And I don't want to sound stupid and contrarian to be contradicting the authorities, right? Now, as soon as all the authorities start to say they're worried, well, then you would be uncaring fool not to be worried then. So there's this big coordination dependence about whether everybody else is worried, mm-hmm. which what allows this big switch. So, you know, in the last two weeks, there was this big switch in public opinion, but there wasn't that much switch in the evidence. Right. You, I mean, you were already, you were where they were already right. ahead in that way. So can less, I really like the article of Tyler Cowens about growther and base rate. And what I really like about it is it puts it into some type of binary. And just to begin discussing it, it, causes people to be really interested like which one am i which one is that and it gets that self-assessment thing which seems to be a really so good hook it's, for it's related to the scientist literary person sort of division which is like the two cultures going way back mm-hmm. uh so you know there's i've always been on the scientist end of the explicit analysis sides you know i've done computer science and physics and, and economics and there's always been these people out there who said we don't trust you analysis types Mm-hmm. You guys, you know, have all this theory, that, and you know what your theory has? It has assumptions. Assumptions can be wrong, and you know what? You could make mistakes in that. And I over here, I have my ho- holistic intuition. I'm not just particularizing the world into its little components. I'm integrating it all in my subconscious and putting it all together into an overall judgment, which is human, you see, and humanistic, and not alien and and you know uncaring. And so, for for centuries, people have criticized analysis in those terms by saying, well. You know, it's all right if some low-level, low-class person needs to do some analysis for something, for something minor. But when it gets important, when it has social value and symbolic value, et cetera, then we can't let analysis take over. We need people who are good, elite people. You look in their eyes and you respect them and you need their intuitions and that should run the world. And there has been this sense of who should run the world in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the an analysis analysts or the intuitives. Mm -hmm. And so this, this issue goes way back. You see, it's not just in this current case, there's often, and so of course, even in in many companies, there's often been this thing where, um, doing analysis is okay at low levels in the organization, but at high levels in the organization, there's a strong norm that things are too complicated there for analysis. There we need to use intuition and we need to use judgment. And of course, that's often a cover for, if I let you do use analysis, I might not be able to control the answer. Right. But if we use intuition and discussion and politics, we'll basically be able to control the answer and make it be whatever we need it to be for our politics. Right, right. So in this case, we're splitting. Is there is this going to be a divide? Is it going to be political? Is it going to split people? And and there's definitely some evidence that base rate type thinking can really be good. And there's good evidence for it also, right? Well, so I've been involved in other debates where I say, I look at people who say they've got some sort of inside analysis and I go, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. And so I retreat back to a base rate. So I've had this longstanding dispute with some other people in artificial intelligence futurism where they, ima- they imagine this future AI showing up that sort of takes over suddenly and, and does this thing called FOOM where it starts out hardly anything. And then after a weekend, it's so powerful, it takes over the world. And they think they have a theory that predicts that. And I look at the theory and I go, no, you don't have a theory there. Mm -hmm. And so I say, well, let's look at all the data we have about similar things that have ever happened. And I say, nothing like that ever happens. And I go, that's not very likely. And so to me, it's all about how strong is your theory? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So there are many places in the world where people pretend to have stronger theory than they do. 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, a lot of hedge funds, uh, financial organizations out there, we know the statistics of hedge funds overall is that on average they lose money relative to the just putting yourself money in an index fund, especially when you take into account their management fees. And so, but if you talk to any one person with a hedge fund, they'll show you all their calculations and they'll show you how they think they're going to beat the market. Mm-hmm. And so that's a case where you look and go, yeah, I know you got this analysis, but come on, look at these stats here. On average, yeah. you guys are losing. And similarly for medicine, I'd say, when I look at the statistic about on average medical treatments aren't helping, mm-hmm. I got to say, you know, that's going to put me off for any one medical treatment. I'm going to need to see not just some crude judgment. I'm not going to need to see some stronger evidence. Now, there are many particular medical treatments where I would definitely recommend getting them because the, you know, the evidence is so strong. Um, that includes many vaccines. I just got poked yesterday with some vaccines for a trip to Africa <laughs> making soon, but I am for a lot of medicine. It just comes down to the doctor's judgment and they don't have studies and they don't have much of evidence. And they just say, I've kind of seen patients this helping and I recommend it. And I go, Nope, not going to go with that. And so there, there is, I think, you know, both cases where on the one case, people pretend to have more expertise than they do. And you really should go back to base rates mm-hmm. and not trust them just because they say so. And then there are other areas where we actually have strong theory, really well worked out, really solid over a long time that you should trust when it says something different than the base rate. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we have the two camps and I have I measure my different friends by how they're you know going in. And some of them are very much saying but they're, they're, they're looking at me and saying, but there's nothing to be worried about, right? You're not worried, right? Because this doesn't normally happen. And so I think everybody's overreacting, right? And, and I feel that. And so that's the um, <clears throat> kind of the position of the base rate person. And then there's other people like you who are taking polls and bets on whether or not 10 million people will die. Right. So it comes down to, you know, from the point of view of somebody who has the time and effort to look at the, the details, is this strong, solid theory or is this very weak? Mm-hmm. Uh, from the point of view of other people, it's, do I trust that person? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. even when it's weak theory, a lot of people pretend to have more evidence than they do. So our mm-hmm. world is full of con folk selling stuff they don't have. Mm-hmm. So that, that is our large world. Uh, and so overall, it is appropriate for people to be skeptical of experts who just claim to be experts, but don't actually know as much as they think. Uh, But I go into particular details now. So I should like contrast this by talking about a thing where I think the evidence also suggests something that's contrary to what most other people think by using theory. And that I've, I've found it very hard to convince most any of my colleagues, et cetera, to believe me. (laughs) And, And that's cryonics, which is related to medicine. So cryonics is this thing where you pay a company to when medical science gives up on you right now, they basically freeze you in liquid nitrogen and leave you there for as long as it takes until someday in the future when they have better technology, then they would come back and revive you. Uh, Now, my best guess method of revival is brain emulation, which is the topic of my book, Age of M, but that's more particular. But to me, the evidence here for this claim is that um, growth has been consistent for a long time, technological improvement is consistent for a long time, and all I am or all you are that you really care about is the pattern of arrangements of the, the stuff in your brain that lets you be you. And so it's quite 
possible that when you take this frozen brain in the future and you have better technology, you could just scan all the cells, see where they are, what are they connected with, and then make a new computer model that has the same connections as that brain. And if you've gone gotten to the right detail and made the model have enough similarity to the original, then this new model, when you turn it on, it would be like you in the brain. That is, mm -hmm. it would you could ask it a question, it would ask back, it would act just like you would because it's a model of that brain. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that's all very solid theory, but it's enough assumptions along the way that even most of my colleagues go, that's crazy. Yeah. So some people just don't think the, you are a physical thing. So some of my colleagues just still insist on believing that we are not physical beings. We are something else besides our, just our brains. Other people think that, you know, this will just, the brain is way too complicated and this will never happen for thousands and thousands of years. Um, even though, you know, brain science seems to suggest we've got a handle on, on these things, but other people, of course, are skeptical in other ways, but this is, I'm being honest and saying, well, here's another case where I'm going with theory mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm being the analyst analyst. I'm saying, look, um, it, it works out when I check out all the things, but I, I really can't convince very many people in which case most of even you two and most of your listeners might also not be convinced. And from your point of view, this might be the, the warning about going too far in believing theory. Yeah. Yeah. I want uh, my issue there would be continuity. It sounds like that other machine would turn on. I believe that a hundred percent and it would act like me. That is not that I believe that a hundred percent, but right. I just don't know that my experiential self gets to take the ride. There is no such thing as your experiential self. Uh, okay. <laughs> there are just these creatures out there that think they're you. This would be a creature that thinks it's you. Uh, yeah. From its point of view, it agrees with that. <laughs> oh, there is God. no other answer. There is no, the universe has no answer about what, which one is really you. There is no such thing. So you reject that the, even the concept of continuity being relevant to that? You, it's relevant if you decide it's relevant, but that's the reason it's relevant. <laughs> if you that. decide to make that your thing, then fine. That's your thing. But yeah. Oh man, that's great. Uh, same okay. way with you. If you insisted on always living in a con continuous house, you would never move out of your house. You would always just keep changing the house and maybe even picking up and moving it while you're staying inside of it. And that would, that's your right. If you decide that house continuity is your thing and you're going to make sure your house is always continuous, then you could do that. I, I'm not sure why I should care about house continuity. I mean, I'm willing to go into a new house. <laughs> well, I'm tempted now. I don't know if there's more to do on the coronavirus or go this direction because I'm, I'm fascinated by both. Toby, you had to bring us back to earth if we need to be to be there or not yeah well, well let me just start right here with that question <laughs> but but if that's the case and it's your your brain in uh and and even in like AJM, i was i was blown away because the only way i've ever even thought or even the littlest bit i know about emulation is in the context of expanding your life continuing your legacy or you being able to stay alive and then uh you're talking about it as a robot and I'm like, wait a minute, but I'm not a robot. But now you're saying, but that's just me saying I'm not a robot or, or, or me caring that I am or I am not a robot. But I, the, the reason why it feels like it breaks down a little bit to me, just in the, the simplest thing is, if there's me and then there's robot me or emulation me or whatever, if emulation me will not care if it gets turned off, it seems like I would care. Of course it would. It, of course it would care. So the prediction is, if it's an emulation of your brain, then it does the same things as you do in the same situations. It has the same feelings, the same objections, the same preferences, the same plans. Be after it now lives in a new world with a new body, et cetera, and new friends. So it 
diverges over time and becomes something different. But initially, it's exactly like you. That's the point. So yes, it would it would object being turned off. Now, it, it turns out that in the early period when you probably would, the process of scanning your brain to make the emulation would probably destroy the, destroy the brain in the first place. So there wouldn't really be you left. <laughs> But once you had this emu, they could make copies of them and you might be five or five million of them. Mm -hmm. And they'd have to worry about which one of them is the real them if there is such a thing. Yeah, it's been really interesting on Netflix. I've been watching this show called Altered Carbon and they upload their content. I don't know. You probably you probably could read a a book review about it on on my blog. And so basically, you know, they're not being very realistic about what that really like. So, I mean. I wrote The Age of M in order to figure out and describe what what it would really be like to have those things. But of course, that doesn't tend to make the most entertaining stories. Right. And so people find it easier to write these stories. But It's way more interesting to think of yourself in a flesh suit and (laughs) what that looks like. And and you could look like anybody and be still image. And it's still that maybe what y'all are saying, like the base rate idea of what would be cool if my brain moved somewhere else that's as far that's about as far as i can go with it but that that does that's the sci-fi that's the the thing there so so this is related to our previous discussion when people enjoy something like albert carbon in the top of their head part of the emotion is i sure would be interesting to see what the future would be like i sure wonder what things would be like if these technologies appeared that would be a fun thing to find out Here's a description of that. Let me go immerse myself in that world and enjoy the exotic strangeness of it. And that's like right. heaven, right? The heaven concept or something. Kind of right? like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, heaven or hell even, but it's still exotic and different. But in mm-hmm. fact, most futurism isn't really about the, I mean, most science fiction isn't really about the future because it's really easy to tell just how they're making assumptions, the stories that couldn't happen, but would make their stories work for somebody who's mm-hmm. not paying attention. So science fiction is really just a way for you to escape into a strange world where you have lots of morality plays going on, but it doesn't really have that much to do with the future uh, because they're not really trying. Most science fiction authors, when you point out the ways their story doesn't make sense, they say, yeah, I know that, but I, you know, I did that to make the story work. Right. So they know they're making those trade-offs. It's very rare for them to just consistently, no, no, no. I'm absolutely sure that, you know, I didn't make any choices like that to, that compromise the realism of my story. I mean, there are, there are a few people like that, but very few. But I, but but they're just doing different things. I just heard Alex Garland who made Annihilation and Ex Machina talking, and he was he gets a lot of criticism in that movie because they say the lone genius could have never created a robot yeah, exactly. out there and whatever. Well, that's, that's and he criticism. says, yeah, he said, I know it's, that has nothing to do with anything I'm interested in. I'm trying to get at the philosophical and the intellectual and the stuff he cares about so deeply. That's just. That's not at all. Uh, he right. doesn't take that as criticism in any way. He said, that's right. just so, get that out of the way so we view, can do the thought experiment. He doesn't want to see what that world would actually be like. He wants mm-hmm. to like play on certain morality themes or certain, you know, tension, character yeah. tension themes. And that's what they're doing. So, well, but no, he, fine, he, but, he but would just, say it different though. He would say he wants us to consider the, the implications of, of of consciousness and those types of things, and so he built a vehicle to right. get you but, to do real. But do we want to know the implications in a strange hypothetical world that can never happen, or do we not want to know the implications in the world that will actually happen? <laughs> well, that's two different <laughs> genres, I guess. Though, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, people are much more interested in the former. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's there's movies about heaven. What if heaven doesn't exist? Well, they don't care. They they want to know how. We, how you might feel if there were a heaven is interesting to you and to the writer, and you might enjoy a story about heaven, even if you don't believe heaven exists, right? Mm-hmm. That's fine. You're exploring yourself and your feelings. and uh, But you know, if you actually believed a real heaven exists, you might be pissed that these stories aren't anything like the real heaven. That's how I act toward the future in the sense that there really will be a future, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and why, why don't you call your stuff something else so you don't 
confuse people that they're learning about the future because they're not. This is not <laughs> the future they're learning about. This is learning that. about various, you know, enjoy various interesting fantasies people have. <laughs> well, it goes back to the same thing, just because it, it, the people, it, it, like you said, they they with the coronavirus, they just want to say, oh, well, people will die. And that's as far as they really want to take it. They don't want to think the uh, through the work of it. The same way as when listening, you know, and, and learning about emulations from you, uh, it it seems way less. In, it seems way scarier for me to go. Oh, right? I'm I'm not in the top one percent that would probably be emulated. I'm one of those people that wouldn't be. Yeah. I, I, you're not going to need my brain to be a million of my brain working. It's actually worse than the top 1%. <laughs> that is, most M's are copies of the few 1,000 most productive humans out of this yeah. 10 billion, right? Is that the so, ultimate cut, you think? It's in that <laughs> neighborhood? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, my prediction is that most of the M world is copies of the 100 humans that were the most productive. <laughs> 100, to 100 to 1,000 humans, roughly, mm-hmm. who are the most productive out of the 10 billion. Mm-hmm. So that's much less than 1%. You know, being in the one percent doesn't isn't doesn't cut it. Being in yeah. the one percent of the one percent doesn't cut it. Not even. So right. that that of course, if you don't know how to make that a morality tale, you don't want to tell your story there. Right. Yeah. You just get, just shut that down and move back to something we can understand or or palate is what people would like to do. Or right. find so, a way to undermine anything you're saying to re, to not have to think about that is probably what goes through most people's mind. And in some sense, that's what you should predict as a reaction to the coronavirus. First, people just don't want to think about it. They don't mm-hmm. want to take it seriously. When they are forced to take it seriously, they will want to grasp immediately at some narrative, you know, that fits into their political right. <laughs> view or whatever, and then not let go of that for as long as it takes. And part of that narrative will just need to be some form of security or assurance that action they're going to be okay. Here, then. Right? And we're in the middle of a super action bias right now for a lot of people. Well, well people want to know, you know, that they'll be okay. And so they feel good if they give a list of things they do that you'll be okay if you do these things. And, you know, that, that's a f- formula that people have in lots of areas of life and scary areas of life, right? Oh my goodness, you know, I could be robbed. Well, what do you do? You, you do these things. Okay, phew, I've, I've got that covered, right? I, I, you could get sick. Oh, I've got health insurance. Okay, doctors will do something. I've got it covered. You know, foreigners could invade. Oh, well, there's, there's a military. They've got that covered, right? And, you, you know, for all the scary things in the world that you take seriously, you just want to know that there's a thing you can believe in that's got it covered and that other people around you believe in. And so that you can share the sense of community and agreement that you all agree that that's covered and that you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to actually protect you. That's the standard security theater story, right? Of course, that we've been doing in airports for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, as uh, in TSA know, is there to make us all feel safer, not to right, do anything. Exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. But but that feeling safer is an important thing for most people, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, oh my God, terrorists could get on the plane and squash it. How, how could I feel safe about getting on the plane? Oh, well, there's TSA. They, they've got a detector. They've got a line. Now you're covered. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a lot of our world. <laughs> because we are so rich... A lot of things we do are these sort of symbolic things we do just to cover a category of things. Um, so, so my colleague Brian Kaplan's book on the case against education basically says education's a lot like this. Look, school is actually this big thing to help us all feel okay about some things, but it doesn't actually teach us much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so why are we wasting all this time in school? Well, at some level, 
you know, the people who get out of school, when they do better, they are better candidates for employment later, et cetera. They, they show off some personal characteristics. But um, it's enormous waste. But we believe that it produces knowledge and, and ability, even though that's not true, but that's a comforting thought. And it's a thought that people around us believe and that it makes us look good to believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the scary thing about the coronavirus is that we will latch on to some random narratives that don't actually have that much to do with the real processes underlying this thing. And then we will randomly either suffer a lot or not, depending on other things out of our control. Mm -hmm. So on the coronavirus, and I, w I would like to move from here into continue into other things, the if people are not put off entirely by your neutral analytic frame and they've figured out that no you're biased or you have some other agenda that they hadn't quite figured out yet if they're not going to reject the way that you're thinking and talking about thinking what would be in there what would you recommend that people try to get a mental grasp on that would then influence their ongoing decision making as everything unfolds so there's two levels as usual there's always the level of social coordination what could we all do together to make these things work out and then there's the personal level. If I can't help society do better, what can I just do? Mm -hmm. Now, in most of politics and most always, we're usually in that first mode. Almost all of politics uh, in the you know presidential debates, et cetera, that's all about what could we all do together? And so that's what we policy people and even academics are actually do. And that's the mode that I start out in here and saying, well, if we could coordinate, what would we do? And so in that mode, the thing, the obvious things, we should be massively expanding our capacity. That is, we're going to run out of medical capacity. So we should be, we should be training hundreds of thousands of people right now in how to do crappy ICU work because mm -hmm. a crappy ICU is better than none. And we're going to have most people being sick and getting none. Mm -hmm. how, so just you got build, numbers a lot of, when... build a lot of crappy ICUs, you know, in high school gymnasiums or tents or whatever it is, and then train a whole bunch of people how to how to how to work in those things you're saying we, commandeer the high school gym now well the training needs to start now uh -huh. that is the the you can expand high school gyms rapidly at the last moment as long as you actually have the beds to put in there and the you know whatever equipment mm -hmm. you put the coordination so we should be, of that we should be making that equipment massively right now but we should be training the personnel to use that equipment because that's typically the major limitation mm -hmm. you can make stuff fast you can commandeer high school gyms fast you can't train people fast so we should be training people really fast. And, mm -hmm. But we'd be hearing about that if that were true. There'd be big ads, right? Yeah, <laughs> hey, everybody, yeah, yeah. come to our, you know, training things. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be needing you in a couple months. And, you know, you've got a six, four-week training course, whatever it is. We're going to show you how to deal with people on respirators in a ICU who have this coronavirus. So that would be an obvious thing we should be doing that we're not doing. Uh, at the social coordination level, we should be rapidly scaling up the resources to deal with people. Do you have a there. mathematical figure of like the type of, I mean, any, or do you have anything like a concrete projection or range of how many people will be sick it's, it's, or well, die? It's not or? mine, but the, the, I think the typical fear is that basically over half the world will be infected. Uh, we, we already know the percentage of those that see might need to be in the ICU to be helped such that they have a bigger risk of dying if they don't go to the ICU, which might be say 10%. So you're already looking at, you know, 5% of the world. And now you're looking at the rate at which this thing grows. So if it doubles every two weeks and you don't slow that down, now basically everybody gets sick in roughly a one-week period. Mm -hmm. Or at least half of them are getting sick in a one-week period. Mm -hmm. Right? 
at the moment in the United States, we have 10 capacity for 10,000 people a day in the ICU. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We have 350 million people. So if 5% of 350 million people need to be in the ICU, well, <laughs> that's, you know, 70 million people. <laughs> Instead of 10,000 capacity. Right. But that's 5% of people that need ICU care versus just have symptoms or are asymptomatic. Uh, so, so I mean, a, a lot of people, I mean, most people don't need to go to the hospital unless, of course, people my age and older, like we have, we need, need it a lot more. But, you know, there's already enough statistics from around the world experience and people in China, et cetera, about that a substantial fraction of people really need the ICU to help. So, in fact, like in China, they have these clear different statistics about within the Wuhan area, which is where it first appeared where lots of people were sick, the death rate there was like almost 3%. Whereas outside of Wuhan, where just a few people were sick, where they each had plenty of medical help, the death rate was 0.04%. Mm -hmm. 0.4%, right? So that's almost a factor of 10. Yeah. You know, and, and there were only ever, you know, 80,000 people sick in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. That's as, you know, that overwhelmed them, right? Out of a place of 11 million, only 80,000, right? So just that tiny fraction of them sick overwhelmed them and increased the death rate. But what happens if, you know, in Wuhan, if 5 million people were infected, that's way worse. Uh -huh. Yeah. Way more death. So, yes. so that's what we're facing. The, the key thing is that is the problem we are facing here within a year. Now, it might be delayed if there's this season effect and it weakens in the summer, but then it'll come back in the winter again. So within a year or so, we are facing the situation where half the world gets sick locally, at least within a roughly one week period. Now, the more we can isolate people, the more we can spread that out, maybe into a one month period, mm -hmm. which is better. But we're in but for a it's bad still week crazy. at some point. It's still crazy, you know, overwhelming of the medical system. So what? Mm -hmm. obviously one thing we should be doing is just massively expanding as much as possible. Like put people in classes, have everybody who runs in any ICU run a class of 20 people, you know, et cetera, just to train them. Just like you do when, when you have a new war, right, in World War II or something, you, you have a small military and all of a sudden you need to train a lot of soldiers. So what do you do? You have the old soldiers out training lots of new ones. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what we should do. But of course, we weren't going to be doing that. Uh, another thing I was suggesting in terms of deliberate affection, it, it, would, it would probably help if we took those people we will need later, especially critical workers in medicine and infrastructure, and expose them now. Had some fraction of them die as a result of that, but the rest get enough immunity so that when the big peak comes, they are, they are able to help. Mm -hmm. that, that would also help. And of course, besides those people, just more other people who are no longer sick at the peak would also help. Um, but I can see why that puts people off as a suggestion. So I get why that's not likely thing to be happening soon. But I still think the experts in this area should be thinking about those sorts of options and at least, you know, think about next time. Right. And do Whether you also think we're in for a big supply side crunch and a, a economic on the economics of this? Well, the, the economic crunch is twofold. One is just when everybody's sick, they can't work. But that's actually relatively small compared to the everybody's afraid of getting sick, so they don't work. Uh -huh. Right. So, so like the Wuhan area, China, like until recently, has been completely shut down. Well, out of you know a billion people, it's only eighty thousand who are sick. 
How does losing 80,000 people make a billion people not be able to produce? It's because they're all home afraid of getting sick. Mm -hmm. So having us all locked down for six months, all afraid of getting sick will be this much larger economic hit than in fact, the fact that somebody's sick and can't work would be. Mm -hmm. And so that's another cost we have by like trying to delay, like if in fact we're all going to get this, it's less clear <laughs> putting up a huge cost to put it off for a few months is, is really worth the cost. Mm -hmm. we're, we're gonna, you're going to get it anyway. What does make more sense is to spread out who gets sick when. And so to the extent we can isolate people in order to spread things out, that helps. But you know, if you, if you don't have any, if for the people who need help, you, you can't get them help because everybody's staying home afraid mm -hmm. of getting sick. That's no good either. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem too, is I feel like we've been trained now to think that everything is an overreaction. If you wait two weeks, it'll go away. Like, I mean, it, a month or right? so, a month or so ago, I thought everybody was saying we were going to be in a war with Iran or a, a new world war three or, <laughs> right, right. you know, what, so th this is a problem that with our world of sort of crying wolf, mm -hmm. you know, so I have a bunch of people I've known all my life who love the idea of space colonization. Okay. They think it's wonderful. And they are always have always been saying ever since I've known about them for 30 years, now is the time. <laughs> now is the time for space colonization. It maybe it wasn't the time before, but now the time is ripe and they've got space startups, et cetera. And of course, this has been going on for 30 years. Now, eventually there will be the time. I don't know if this is today, but eventually there will be the time. But when it is the time, it'll be hard to get anybody to believe that. Yeah. Because so many people have been saying now is the time for so long when it clearly wasn't, right? Right. And so that's a, a problem in our world where so many people give so many warnings about so many things that don't pan out, uh, how does a real problem that is an exception actually get noticed? And so what you hope is that there are some people like me say, who don't jump on every little thing, <laughs> who aren't constantly saying everything's terrible, who, who usually say, nah, that's not a big deal. But then every once in a while, I always say, well, this one though, this one is a big deal <laughs> <laughs> that we have standards, right? We, we, yeah. we are selective. And I mean, that would be one source. I mean, I actually, one of my big areas of, of research in my life has been betting markets. And so I like to see betting markets on these things. And that can be also one good way to get information about what to take seriously mm -hmm. because the betting markets will be a lot more honest about that. And what are they saying? The betting markets in your, well, we don't really have betting markets. Well, you conducted yet. a little bit of, betting I mean, research. I tried to get some betting markets going. <laughs> so, so, but I saw this interesting result where, so like two and a half weeks ago, or guess, um, roughly or two weeks ago, I put up this poll where I said, you know, what's the chance that 10 million people will die by 2022? And the median answer was 5%. And then this, you know, okay. And so then all of a sudden, right after that poll, we had the markets crash and all the media discussion and everybody's talking about it. And then I did another poll nine days later. I said, okay, guys, now what do you think the chances are? And the median answer was 5%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so uh, there is this disconnect between like what ordinary people feel as the actual risk and all this talk out there. And so I, in fact, even at the moment, I think most people are like stocking up at Costco because other people tell them they should, and they feel they don't want to feel stupid or irresponsible, but they don't really believe it. Yeah, that's me. I mean, that, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I want to believe what you're saying. <laughs> 
And I and well, here's the thing too, and what I really appreciate, Robin, about your take is you really are basing it on things that have happened in the past as well. So this, like, I think sometimes people are looking for the new thing. They're they're thinking there'll be a new way of looking at something, even when they're like, even what you're talking about with like. A cryonics or, or freezing your brain or, or whatever they're thinking oh that's a new thing that we haven't figured out yet and you're basing it on on uh, a model that has happened before or the things that we've done before so i i do appreciate that i think for me uh it's hard for me to get worried because i feel like once again i am so worried all the time it, it feels like now i'm i'm way more worried now when I have way more access to everything than I was when right. I was a kid in the eighties. In the eighties, I felt like there was my parents Absolutely. weren't that worried, but now so, we're worried so about just everything. Go, just going off this level of worry is just a misleading indicator. That that's just not the thing to be using, right? You're right. That's just the fundamental thing, because in, in terms of the larger public conversation, it's just a norm that we should always be worried, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> it's like it's even like smiling. So if you think about the social status of smiling. You'll notice that high status people smile less and uh, it's lower status people who do more smiling. And in fact, often we take smiling as a sign of stupidity and low status and that you don't get what's really the problems of the world. And so we often give higher. So if you think of like runway models or sports stars, you'd look at the pictures of them. They're, they're not smiling. Yeah, you're right. It's politicians who might smile, but even CEOs aren't so smiling. And uh, basically, you know, in the world of serious conversation, you're always supposed to be seriously worried about something. And so we're just constantly in this world of something that is the worry of the moment. And mm -hmm. so that's just an equal. You can't go on that for deciding when it's an exceptional problem because people will, will just always be worried about something. You have to be looking at some specifics, that some specific numbers, some specific evidence as the thing that triggers, no, no, this is a much bigger worry. Mm -hmm. I think too, the other thing is uh, it's been reduced to just life or death, not the the idea of what will happen. Like people are only thinking die from coronavirus rather than you're right, like an overwhelmed hospital that's near them. And they're just starting to realize that information. But I feel like that uh, part of the problem too is probably just the media needs clickbait and it's way, it's way better for uh, your, your article to say five people dead in Seattle with almost no information, and that's because that's all anybody's going to read. But then, if you do follow up a little bit, you realize, well, that was maybe all you know, one home for the elderly, or you know, like uh, so. The information gets twisted, and then that's why when I read something like like what you wrote on Twitter, challenging the idea, I had to really sift through. Why is he saying this? What is it? Is he is Robin just doing clickbait? Is it is, is what is it? Is there a real thing here, or is this just another thing? There's just so much that you have. That's why I think everybody it's really hard for them. In, in some ways, it, it, yeah, you're right. Like I'd rather just get it and move on or something. I, I have to deal with that than have to think about getting it. Well, the, the problem is like two months from now, probably the numbers will be a lot bigger than these in the papers, but still, most people won't know anybody who got hurt, mm -hmm. right? And two months from now, people will have all the stuff they bought in, from Costco last weekend <laughs> piled up. <laughs> and Costco will still be open. And it'll still be selling stuff. And a lot of people are thinking, well, that was kind of stupid. Mm -hmm. Because, like, look, there's no problem here. And then, like, a month after that, they will know people who get hurt. Yeah. And then a month after that, most people they know will be hurt. Mm, and, God. you know. <laughs> right. And, and then it'll be a really big deal. So, I mean, our intuitions for how to, like, 
deal with deal with these things aren't very well matched to this exponential cape so in the past when there were these pandemics we didn't people didn't have so much statistics right we are so early in this process in terms of warning compared to people through most of history most of history a pandemic was coming out start killing people that you know they didn't hear about it and know about it until it was killing lots of people mm -hmm. and here you've got stats on the sixth death in the u.s from something right even if that stat is way low it's still a tiny fraction Right. Not the sort of thing you would see in your personal life or in the people around you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is going to drive uh, people and their money and their time uh, to be more separated and, and more maybe even virtual work from home? Will, oh, this, sure. will, will this help the, the, uh, the tech in the virtual world to start in, it, people working on it more and more just so because we're all afraid we're going to die if we touch each other? Well, people will be a lot more willing to try virtual work, of course, because they, I mean, in the past, you know, a lot of companies tried it and then they retrenched and there are, there's various interesting economic and business arguments about whether it's a good or a bad idea, but people obviously will try it a lot more. I think one of the most interesting things always about what happens in people's reacting to something is who they blame. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the sort of the theme of our book, The Elephant in the Brain, is that a lot of our behavior is driven by avoiding blame. That is our real motives in enormous areas, including medicine and school and politics, is so that we couldn't be blamed for violating norms. And so our conscious minds, in fact, you are you have a conscious mind not because it runs your mind. It's more the press secretary of your mind. And its main job is to protect you from being blamed. So it's on, constantly saying, what could I be blamed for? And what will my story be that protects me from that? Mm -hmm. And so people are so into blame. Clearly, a big thing that will happen for the coronavirus is who will start to get blamed for this? Right? Obviously, right. you know. People want to blame Trump, and, and maybe he should be blamed. Of course, a lot of people have been wanting to blame him, Trump, for everything for a while. So, will this add to that? It's not less clear. People could blame you know, the public health authorities. People are already saying, well, we should blame sort of companies that don't let you have as many days off from work as you want, because then you'll be forced to go into work when you're sick. Or we should blame you know, the lack of one single payer health care so that everybody, not everybody has medicine. So, maybe not everybody goes to the doctor to get tested. We should, you know. People are always already right. ready to take all of their usual people they want to blame and blame mm -hmm. it on this new thing. But we'll also have the sort of more conservative side of blame, which is about, say, irresponsible people who uh, aren't being careful enough with protecting their neighbors and associates from infection. You know, how much do we want to blame them? So, um, like I say, the, the World Health Organization has this list of things they published yesterday, but I'm sure they had it before about, you know, it's just terrible to blame anybody. And stigmatize anybody for anything regarding disease. You should just talk abstractly about people getting infected or get, or get get catching it without blaming it on anybody. But maybe it makes sense for neighborhoods and areas to you know create a much more stigma on people who might not be careful enough, not be mm -hmm. cautious enough. They mm -hmm. you know somebody comes into work when they're sick. You know that's not just a whimsical sort of character flaw. That's like a thing we should be blamed for. So put the put the stigma on them. Yeah, so for. stigma is a powerful thing. Shame. And we, Everybody says and we got to get rid blame, of shame. Shame, but stigma, not on that. and yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. May well come back. And so then the question will be: Well, what's it acceptable to blame people? You know, what characteristics? You know, mm -hmm. is is their ethnicity an appropriate thing for blame for their age, their um, travel frequency? Uh, you know, they're wearing a mask. Uh, they're wearing gloves. We will be working out over the next six months. What are the acceptable things to blame people for? Yeah. 
Oh, and wow. and that that's that'll be important because it'll matter too. Yeah. Having better norms about blame will matter to whether it gets you know prevented or not. We're actively uh, going to create new taboos, have shame that we're going to implement together for effect and evolve new norms is what we're going to do right. well, collaboratively. Of we will have the new norms. They may not be that effective in the sense that <laughs> somebody may hijack this process mm-hmm. to sort of dump on people they don't like mm-hmm. uh, because people often do that. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, we should be think, trying to think about what good norms would be and how we could tell the difference between good norms and bad ones. And, uh, you know, what to be open to in, in these things. I, I, that seems to be something we should. So like in China, they had the strong authoritarian government that, you know, it didn't sort of wait for organic norms to develop. It sort of told yep. everybody, you know, you're locked in your apartment. You can't leave. Here's the rules, et cetera. If we're less willing to do that here, then are we able to quickly enough substitute that with, you know, grassroots norms about who should be doing what? Yeah. Well, it almost seems like what you're saying is the more humane thing, because if it, if it, if we don't do that, then it, it is more dangerous, right? For example, I, everybody's, uh, they just think they're crazy if the people don't give their kids vaccines, right? But, but, right. Well, they, they, right. You know, oh, they're just crazy. But I've been right. in a, a situation like when I was, uh, when I was living in Seattle and all of a sudden there was a, a whooping cough. Uh, uh, epidemic and with all the kids at the schools and th- I was like, but and so I got real, I was mad at those pa- that it, it, yeah. it became real at that moment where I was like, wait a minute, whoever wouldn't do that. I want to know who they are, where they are, what they look like, all of them. <laughs> right? And I, they are going to stay away from us and I want them to not bring their kids to our church or our school or whatever. And I got what it, it became really personal in that moment. And I, I wasn't mad about the 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 people it wasn't the old thing where you're just you know picking people, on them because they're this or they're right. intelligence or whatever about your kid yeah it, it became real and so and it became real very quickly this happened over about a month where I was like we are not going you're not taking our kids to church Jess you're not going taking them to school nothing we are out because these people are <laughs> right. these people are dangerous right. that's what I started thinking about them. right so but if, if they the vac but because they didn't do the vaccine it because it caused me to be maybe meaner. Or worse, right. or and I'm just one person. Imagine right. on the, like, if you're talking with the coronavirus, if it's this global, this many millions of people, so people are going to get cruel. In our world today, like in China, one of the key things that interacts with norms is privacy. That is, it's hard to have a norm that disapproves of something if you can't know about it. So a key thing is what things can we know about? So like even like in Korea, apparently, uh, they have set up the system where whenever they had a new infection, a new person infected, they sent a text message to everybody who lived in the area saying, this person at this address <laughs> just was announced to be affected, oh, wow. affected. And that was like helping people to figure out how to react, right? Because they, uh, and so, and of course in China, they have people with apps and they, you have to, you have to get permission to, to go places based on your contacts and all that sort of thing. So that'll be a big question in our world. Of course, we have the technology to spread a lot of information out around, but will we allow it? Will, will that be acceptable as a ways to help us with our norms? Right. Right. So, you know, if somebody has, has, has had an association with somebody who was infected, should that be information available to those of us who want to associate with them? That that's a key part. So in the past, you see, we've had a lot of this sort of, anti-stigma attitudes in public health, like especially like uh, during the HIV epidemic, right? which is in a sense still going on, there was the, you know, people are staying away from gays and they're stigmatizing gays because gay, gays might get this and um, that's bad and that pushes them away. But of course, 
people have been willing to use stigma to say punish smokers and just, and to disapprove of smoking and lately me too and sexual harassment right people have been willing to use informal gossip and stigma in order to to shape behavior in these areas and discourage things and the the question is in Europe and the United States we've had this norm for several decades that you know public health shouldn't be helping people shame anybody so they shouldn't be telling neighbors about who's infected and they shouldn't be closing borders and they shouldn't be for you know insisting on testing but other parts of the world have have not been do have had different policies and some of them are doing a lot better right i mean singapore is i think the best case at the moment for a place that did a really great job but singapore isn't you know it is somewhat authoritarian right but they they really you know tracked every person and they were public about it and they were very thorough but it penetrated privacy mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I think we'll have to, I mean, I hope the effect of this is that people will relax. I mean, I think it's scary to listen to this and stay abstract and people want to just get down to what do I need to do tomorrow? But it seems to me to have the open mindedness about authoritarianness and norms and shame and just to push everybody's limits to not immediately reject things that sound like you already knew that they were bad let's relook at them and reapply them to the specific situation with the evidence as it unfolds and try to you know not split over who is the quants that are all about the numbers and who what's common sense and and you know i think we could collaborate and work together on that would be the idea if everybody could stretch their minds a little bit it's kind of the only thing that i hope to to push along for now i don't know if you have something more specific well, I love to sort of talk at the abstract level and to think mm -hmm. and sort of push the boundaries and I have fun with that. But mm -hmm. of course, um, usually it doesn't get so personal for me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm in the age where this is going to be personal, right? Mm -hmm. Me and all the people I know at my right. age are especially at risk of this. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a whole different, interesting, for, I mean, I can see for myself, I'm honest with all of you. I can feel very confident and analytical in the abstract level. And then when I say to myself, uh oh, I need to stock up stuff at home for two months or whatever of supplies, well, that feels pretty stressful. Mm -hmm. That doesn't right. feel so empowering. It feels like, <laughs> what the hell? Right. <laughs> and yeah. like, I have to go figure out like what kind of cleaning supplies I need. And do I have to go look up which kind of things are cleaning this or that? Or like, you know, which kind of masks are better masks? And like, you know, how come the. The authorities don't already have this worked out for God's sake. How come I have to go figure all this crap out? Right. How come we each have to go figure all this stuff out? Uh, you know, I, you, know, you lose your faith in the authorities and say like, you guys dropped the ball, like in terms of like, especially all their lack of testing. We don't really know in the U S how many cases are out there. Cause we've had way restrictive criteria on testing. Now, supposedly they're getting more tests out, but like you still go like you guys were the experts on this. This was your thing. This, this was your one job. You know, there's this old meme. You had one job. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it makes you feel very threatened. Like, you know, the, the society didn't protect you. They, they aren't, they don't have your back. They don't have all worked out for you. Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, I really appreciate your time on this. I have another thing that I want to do and it is ask you a bunch of questions rapidly so that I can okay. get your take on them. I kind of get this from Tyler Cowan does short segments and short questions and pops right. around. I really lo love that. Uh, and I wanted to give a crack at it. Because all right, let's give it a try. I have uh, all these pet theories and ideas, and I'm always trying to say them, but I don't have 
no offense, a lot of intellectual friends, and I'm not intellectual, and I don't know theory okay. or feel that I have access to it or anything like that. And I would like to get some of these things unstuck or know if I'm wrong and just move on. And I think maybe a few minutes here I could make some rapid progress if there's anything that you have answers to. Um, and that's totally fine. Just pop into it. If not, you can just pass. I'm going to just go through okay. a few of my pet theories <clears throat> that are unworked out, not supported by, you know, data or theory. So, okay. Could we feasibly get rid of time zones to sp- simplify our life much the way that daylight savings is being abandoned by some? Uh, I don't see it, but I mean, maybe I haven't heard the right proposal. <laughs> the, the proposal will be just one time for everybody. Everywhere in the world? Yeah. And then we just get used to it. Uh, and wherever you live, it might be that you it's get up at 3 a.m. That's right. Yeah. But or you, you might go to work at it's 8 p.m. in your part right. of the world. I don't think people would like that. I, mean, I, I, re, I, re, I If you forced it, they, they would adapt, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they'd like it. Okay. How about this one? Is Can I rationally defend being non-participatory in politics and voting as a strategy for improving sure. our system? Absolutely, because... Unless you think like you have some unusual values and you really need to make sure your value segment is represented, uh, then your major effect is on the information, like how well informed are you? If you actually think you're less than well, median well informed, you'd be better off staying out and having the people who are more better informed influence things. So I think the main reason you would be tempted not to do that is to admit you are less than well, half better informed is a, is an insult. Basically, you don't want to insult yourself. And so people it's just a similar reason why people insist on decorating their own houses. Mm-hmm. Look, go with me there. Like most hotel rooms and hotel lobbies look much better than most living rooms. Mm-hmm. Why the hell? <laughs> and they're cheaper. Most hotel room lobbies and rooms are cheaper, more cheaply decorated than most people's living rooms. But most people are too proud to admit that they aren't so good at decoration. That's and they right. insist on having their own personal choice of couch and pictures and right. everything else. <laughs> Will taking showers as much as we do now fall out of favor? Why would it? Well, maybe water conservation. I, I feel that people no. are worried about being seen as not being clean, so they overdo the signaling of showering and cleanliness. Yeah, but I don't see much reason for that to change. I, I think people like people like showers. They like to be clean. They, mm-hmm. they like to seem to be clean. They will keep water's cheap. It's mostly the time cost, not the water cost. So, not envir- That won't be an environmental increase in water price no, and no, such things. I mean, no. Okay. What taboos do you think we have now that are harmful that we could get rid of? Taboos that are harmful. Um, that's good. Do you, do you have an example of something in mind? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm we wondering have a lot just of which ones that are outdated. I don't think they get outdated. I think they need to be supplanted by better systems. So, for example, um, we had this remarkable invention thousands of years ago to replace mob justice with a legal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ordinary taboos or norms were that, you know, if somebody did something wrong, you gossiped around it and, and people near them gossip or not decide what to do. And then they did something right. Mm-hmm. And that often went wrong because gossip often goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we developed this legal system where you have to have a formal charge and maybe a formal judge and things like that. And that, that was a big improvement. And you can think of that as sort of replacing an old taboo with, with a new system. But I think it's more about making a better system to replace a bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, all the taboos we had had some purpose. And so, and most of those purposes are still around, but mm-hmm. you can have a better system that replaces a worse system. 
Okay. Do you think that parental interference or what people call bulldozer parenting, as that's kind of an emerging concept, is a big problem or could rise to the level or be included in the conversation with abuse and neglect? Um, there are these t- perennial issues that it's just puzzling in some sense to see people constantly redebating, right? So humans forever have had that basic issue about how strong a parent to be and how intrusive a parent to be uh, about all sorts of things, including romance. And we just kind of go through these cycles where we have different attitudes. This is a forager farmer thing. Foragers are very light with parenting. Mm -hmm. Farmers are much more strict parents. And so over the last century or two, we have moved definitely in the direction of lighter parenting. Uh, But there's always contrarian elements that say, no, that's, you know, not so good. So Clearly, the long-term trend is toward lighter parenting because that's a forager trend. But people who are driven to succeed are often going to be a little more farmer-like because farmer attitudes actually help people succeed in many ways. So often among elites, you will see them having more farmer-like behaviors, even if they give lip service to forager values. And that's probably also true in, in parenting. So most elites will give lip service to forager values about in, you know, helping their children find their passion and helping them love what they do and, and finding internal motivations. But then elite parents will still put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on um, getting the behavior out of the kids they want. Okay. Do you think that the, the development of humans and children uh, is a very under optimized, undiscussed thing that would lead to many, many good things if we could get better at the development of of young people? Well, I put that in the forager farmer sort of thing. And I'd say um, the industrial revolution and the industrial era uh, has made us split in in a key way. At work, we've become hyper farmers. (laughs) At work, we put up with even more ranking and ordering and domination than even most farmers would put up with. And certainly far more with foragers. But when we step outside of work, we become these hyper foragers who, uh, so for example, if we had more farm, farming attitude out at our leisure, we would live in uh, large like hotels where we all you know, got our meals together in a central facility and had our laundry done centrally. And we would raise our children more centrally. I mean, this was, of course, long observed, you know. If we took the attitude of efficiency and you know hyper expertise and really learning how to do something well into our leisure life, there's a lot of things we would be doing differently. But in fact, at work, we are very well organized in big firms that are hyper technical and very lots of experts. And in our personal lives, we put this huge value on following our intuitions and doing things by ourselves and being very amateurish. And that's, of course, what we do with parenting. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are very amateurish parents uh, and we are amateur household managers as I talked about in terms of organ, even decorating your living room, right? We, we all just have to invent our own decoration for our living room just because that's part of our value uh, that we all have. And then we're doing that with parenting too. So clearly, if we wanted something objective out of our kids and parenting, then being organized about it would produce that. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're prioritizing. We're more prioritizing the bond we have with our child and the sense of their independence and our independence and our sense of creativity and expressiveness. And we get to do all that with our parents. But part of the cost is we're not very good at it. Do you think that creativity, that do you, what is a higher commodity if, if it were possible than if 
than the ability to harness human creativity. If that was a commodity that you could, well, if people have. cared about it, we could get a lot more of it. So, look, the it's fact undervalued. is, we we give a lot of lip service to creativity, but we almost we put very little value on it. Right. So that's what I'm asking. Like, yeah. In schools, for example, it's well known that schools tend to punish creativity, suppress it. Teachers don't actually like the creative students because they're more trouble to deal with. Most workplaces don't want creative workers either in most things. And so schools are a good match in training people and, and preparing them for modern workplaces. And we, in fact, don't want much creativity in the modern world. So most bosses, when they look at a creative worker, they just see error and deviation. They, they, what they want is, hey, here's the standard way to do it. And you know, they want that worker to do the standard thing the standard way. There are a very limited number of jobs where on, on a limited number of dimensions, you want creativity in an ad executive or a researcher or something. But even there, you don't want them creative on most things. You want them creative on a limited number of things. So our world just doesn't actually want much creativity, and it manages to suppress it quite a bit. And that's the sad fact. Uh, we Why is it a sad fact? Well, because we lie and say we value creativity, and we cherish creativity in ourselves. That is, we many people often sacrifice in other ways in terms of career success and stability, et cetera, in order to take a job that allows their creativity to be expressed because they are very proud of that creativity mm -hmm. because it's given high status. And this is often, of course, a way in which sort of you have to be rich to be creative. And so, you know, as you know, many, most screenwriters and novelists, et cetera, they tend to have rich parents uh -huh. who allowed them a lot of time to, you know, go be creative because you really can't do those things unless you have rich parents or some source of other income to let you spend a lot of time being creative because that's, you know, not really paid for. So if you could harness it and put it in a commodity though, it would be, could, what could be more valuable? Well, the main value of creativity is innovation. Mm -hmm. So, and so we definitely know as economists, we don't have enough innovation. Clearly we, we should doing much better to encourage innovation, but we just are not very sure how. Mm -hmm. So, so this is in a sense, probably the biggest, hardest economics question there is, how can we encourage more innovation? We, mm -hmm. we know about things like patents and copyrights and other sorts of mechanisms that in principle should be encouraging innovation. And then when we look empirically at them, they don't actually seem to be working very well. And well, we're just kind of stuck and confused. We don't know how to, but if we could encourage more innovation, we would. Will there be an eventual chasm between higher and lower class people that is uncrossable where the lower class is more consumeristic or taken care of or whatever, but it's to, to your point about the age of M and the elites that divide and is that divide well, coming? I mean, it's just typically to, typical to have a spectrum mm -hmm. and in sometimes in places that spectrum spreads out farther or less, it's less often to have a sharp division that requires a little more artificial effort to create the sharp division. In our society, probably the sharpest division is college versus not. Mm -hmm. And we do have a lot of class divisions by college. And in some sense, that is an uncrossable chasm in the sense of you socialize with people and some of them like don't go to college. They often just have a different style of socializing and a different style of conversation and a different set of values, et cetera. And that is a major division in our society today. And education is, you know, the primary marker of that binary division. What do you think is our biggest existential risk that our behavior can reliably mitigate the effect of? <laughs> Individual personal behavior? Well, uh, you could answer that okay. either way. Well, I mean, you know, it, existential risk is obviously overwhelmingly important. To the extent you can find one and do something about it, it's overwhelmingly important to do. But it's actually quite hard to identify them and figure out things to do. Um, I think that... Um, it's hard to figure out things you can do to affect the long-term future. 
So uh, even, you know, obviously if you are part of the military that manages nuclear weapons, then please help us avoid a nuclear war. But most of us can't do much about that. Uh, you could, of course, help innovate and help us invent things to keep our economy growing and going faster. Um, you might try to be a futurist to try to study the future and figure out what things might be neglected to help tell us about them, to, to deal with them. Uh, but those are unusual things that most people wouldn't be well suited to do. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think uh, the most obvious thing that most people could do is fertility. One of the biggest problems in the world today is uh, crashing fertility. Mm -hmm. And most people could, in fact, help with that in a very straightforward way that would you know, give them a lot of personal advantages at also personal costs. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be the, the most... So a lot of people I know are trying to influence the future by thinking about things and writing essays and blog posts and tw tweeting. And you go, and then you go, well, it's just less clear how much of an influence that will really have on the future. Having a kid is a pretty reliable way to, to, to have an impact, you mm -hmm. know, 80 years from now. So having the kid, but then how you develop it and then how it's interfaced and where it's creativity is, I guess these are all the things that percolate to me that seem that they're not connected very well in people's well, thoughts. My, my colleague, Brian Kaplan has this book about this selfish reason to have more kids where he says, look, people overestimate their influence on their kids. Mm -hmm. Your biggest influence is to have them. And mostly what they're like d isn't affected that much by how you treat them while you're around. You, you and them can have a better or worse life if you treat them well, and you probably should, but they will mostly be what they are regardless of how you raise them. It, but they will be how they are because they are your kid because they share a lot of genetics, because they come from your culture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I worry a lot that crashing fertility will cause bigger problems. I, I don't, I still think it's pretty likely that eventually fertility will rise again, just because eventually selection pressures will induce that. But I can see a lot of pain between now and then that we could avoid with more fertility. And I'll let you go here, but do you tr actively seek to retain optimism are, are you naturally optimistic despite all the negative things you're able to face and look at in the big way? How do you deal with that? It doesn't feel like a parameter I influence or control much. It's mm -hmm. just who I am, personality. But, but so, you find yourself to have a general optimistic disposition? Yeah. And does that help you face harder to look at things? I don't know, because I can't know what it would be like if I didn't have it. It's just like a <laughs> constant with me. It's who I am. Well, I'm fascinated by the things you select. So I guess if I had to ask one last question, is it apparent to you how you select what to pay attention to and work on? Or is that just natural? Well, it took me time to hone my priorities and to have the courage to follow through with them. But by now, that's a ingrained habit that I don't have to work on much. But now that I'm 60 years old, many of you might not be 60, so you might be in an earlier stage of your life where you are trying to make these priority choices and to stick with them. So for me, the key choice was to ask this thing I'm thinking about now and this new thing I just noticed, which is more important, <laughs> which, which has the bigger potential to be a big thing that matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And even if the first thing I was doing, I said, well, I have a degree in that and I have a job in that. And there's all these people who know about me in that. And I've got all this investment in it. And I still might look at it. I say, yeah, but that other thing is more important. And just to always have the courage to go, well, let's go with the more important thing. Or at least give it some time to explore to see if it has the potential of being what it 
suggests it might be. And so just constantly be on the lookout for things that could be more important than what you're doing that could have bigger potential. And over time, you get a sense of you tried something and it didn't work out so well, and you start to develop a better intuition for what it is about something that makes it have the potential to be big and important. And that's Mm -hmm. not something I can articulate very well. That's, but that'll come to you in this trying effort. But the key thing is to constantly be trying to be saying, okay, here's a thing, you know, does it, does it have the potential to be important? And then to try it out for a bit and then learn a bit. Oh, I guess, no, the problem here was there's no theory or the problem here is there's nothing we can do about this now without this other thing. Or, you know, you start to collect all these indicators about what makes something promising or not. Mm-hmm. But so, you only get that by trying. Yes, and so your the the skill there is to try to pay attention to second and third third order consequences in real time as you go. Just ask, you know, this thing I'm working on. How important is it? How much does it matter? So often I've like worked on something because I had a theory of why it was important, and later on I realized oh, one of my assumptions in that theory is just wrong, and then it was a lot less important than I thought. But I might have invested a lot of time and effort into it. And a lot of other people, they didn't realize this mistake. And I could just keep going with it without telling them about the mistake. <laughs> or I could own up and say, oh, I guess this is less important than I thought. So I should back off of it and do something else. And something else, you know, somebody else, say I might have a rival and they might say B is important while I'm working on A. And then I don't want like B, I diss it because my rival likes it. And then later on, I might realize, well, no, they were right. <laughs> they were right about this reason for it. And then you got to, then you should be willing to like suck it up, swallow your pride and say, okay, my rival was right. And I was wrong that B was a lot more promising than I realized. Excellent. Well, help me expand my circle, but from a few more minds that I really like their neural signatures of you, Brian Kaplan, Tyler Cowan, uh, slate star codex is new to me. Where else, where should I be looking next? What, what else, what else, who else can I add to, to, Good I am just not very good at that. I'm afraid. Okay. <laughs> I'm just not very, I haven't been searching around for all the interesting people to talk to lately. And so I, I have contacts I've collected over the years that I've just stuck with, but I haven't been doing that search and I'm sorry that I would be more helpful to you if I had. No, that's but, okay. There's plenty to learn just from those ones that I've listed already that I couldn't even So, so I have to be honest, like there is this age cycle where early in life you should be exploring and developing and, and thing. And then later on life, once you've collected enough like things that you've done part way that you haven't finished, you should probably just focus on finishing the crap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Matt, just Matt, you take the stuff that you've done part way that you mm-hmm. that you that are still very promising that you got bored with for or put aside for some reason. That's probably your most promising stuff to work on as you approach the end of your life, because you only have that much time left. Each thing might take a lot of time and effort and you've already done half or three quarters of the work on some of these things. Just finish it. (laughs) Get it it done. Got it. Well, thank you so much for, for it. And your mental flexibility is uh, something I really look up to and, uh, and have gotten a lot out of getting to spend some time with you today. So thanks Robin. It's been an enjoyable experience. Toby, anything else? I didn't get to ask uh, my four questions. Go for for it. it. Okay, this is either a statement or a question. Recycling is dumb. Oh, I forgot about that one. <laughs> it feels like the biggest waste of time, and it, the, it costs tons of money that it does not feel like it's actually worth it. And it has to happen at my house every week, and I have to yeah. put certain things in a certain way that feels like the biggest waste of time that does not feel like the return on investment is worth it. It's a ritual. So... 
I am an engineering nerdy sort that early in life was very resentful of symbolic rituals that other people did and then they wanted me to waste my time with because I didn't think I needed those symbolic rituals because they weren't helping me do the things I wanted to do. Over my life, I've come to realize that in fact, religion and ritual produces a lot of social benefits for a lot of people. Like overall, people who are religious, they live longer, they have more income, their marriages last longer, there's less crime, there's, there's less disease. Just all the things you could ever like about people are more and people are religious. Nevertheless, when I look at re particular religious things, I say, why should I spend my time on that? That looks like a waste. Mm -hmm. And that's true for a lot of other rituals. So uh, I have to set aside my emotional immediate reaction which agrees with you <laughs> and ask what function is the ritual of recycling serving ah, for people i'm at that exact phase uh, of my life recycling is dumb but do it anyway and learn that skill to get along better in life for, with yourself and other people and be good I it's not, it. not that i want to endorse all common rituals but mm -hmm. i see that rit many rituals have a lot of value and that's what makes me pause Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm with you. Uh, y'all are just saying if your wife wants to do something, just do it. It'll make you happy wife, happy life. That sounds like what y'all are saying. All right. Uh, well, you might ask. So, I mean, another thing is like I've learned, of course, late in life, as many of us do, that if I had spent more time investing in collecting friends and contacts early in life, I wouldn't be lacking as many later in life, right? Right. That's true. Uh, is there any chance that the coronavirus was created by man or, and it was like accidentally let out or is sure. for population control? Of course there's a chance. I mean, I, population control sounds unlikely. I mean, why, you, why, why would that, that seems at least crazy in the sense that if they understood what they were doing, they, they're, they're hitting the entire world. You, you might imagine yeah. if you're trying to release this against your enemies, you'd want it to be local and stay there. Right. right? That's true. This is going to spread everywhere. So, so the, could have so, been an accident, um, though. You it think? could have been an accident. Yeah. Sure. You think it's um, a, a chance it man-made type deal here? Sure, or? it could be. I mean, I don't see that it matters much. Yeah, except for right. blame. I mean, we already have blame in terms of the the first couple of weeks. The local government like suppressed the evidence and, yeah. and repressed the people. So we can blame them for that. I'm not sure how much blame we can blame them having these animal markets in China right. and if they stop that sort of thing there these things was less happen less often you can do those blames there but all right I'm not sure how useful that is um maybe you can talk about one point of this but I'm from South Carolina all my family's in South Carolina huge red state very big Trump supporters I've have moved away I'm more open minded but I can't no one ever you're an economist no one is really clarified for me maybe even just one point is Trump's economy really bad for me like, is, is it actually like, what, it, <laughs> what would be bad about it for you? Well, I'm saying, is it, cause that's what everybody says on the left, that hit, the economy's horrible, that his plans and his policies are so oh. bad that it's ruining, ruining in America. And then my family members say the exact opposite, that, that we have the lowest, uh, it, job unemployment rate and we have all, you know, the booming in all this stuff. It, it seems like both sides have, uh, oh, okay. positions well, they're so, taking. Um, the economy's had this record boom. That's good. Presidents don't cause that much. <laughs> But they usually take the credit for they it because that's it. how the system works. Right. Uh, and so he's getting lucky up until recently to get to take the credit for this boom that he doesn't mostly cause. You know, Trump, in terms of left versus right, he was uh, not very right in the sense that in terms of his policy positions, uh, he was more in the middle. It's just his style and rhetoric that's the thing the left hates mainly. Right. Not his actual policies. So his but actual course, policies don't bother you that much as an economist? 
No, <laughs> uh, you know he's he's a pretty middle of the road for a lot of for uh, for for wow. most political most economic policy things. Yeah, uh, he's actually relatively pro deregulation, which I tend to think is good. Uh, well, that hasn't gotten that much attention. I think that was the purpose. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I don't think Trump is the second coming or Hitler. He's he's pretty much in the middle in terms of policy. But the the remarkable things is just his personal style. And his and his uh, defiance really, you know, energizes one side and pisses off the other side, and that's right. where most of the debate has been. And I'm curious what will happen with the next president. <laughs> that is, um, we've seen this escalation apparently over time, where each side claims the other person is the embodiment of evil, and you know, really exaggerates how terrible they are. Right. And there's some definitely ways in which Trump actually is more unusual than most people, certainly in terms of his styles and his, you know, his expertise areas or lack and his, you know, et cetera. Uh, but um, I, I think many people would say Trump was the worst president ever in a very long time. But many people said that about Bush. Right. Too. And I'm expecting that what chances the question is the next Republican president, how many people will say he is the worst ever? Right. And I, I fear that that's just a habit people yeah. gotten into just get is that. to say that they're, they're the worst ever. And of course, on the other side, they'll, I mean, we're in this increasing polarization phenomena, which is interesting and somewhat unusual. That is the world isn't as polarized as we are. And we were, or, or if they were, they were as much in the past. So it seems like actually the exception was right after World War II, United States was unusually united and unusually coherent and unusually, you know, compromising in the middle. And then since then, with peace and prosperity, we've drifted into larger polarization, which is more like the norm in the rest of the world. And um, how bad can it get? I guess it's, it's a big question. All right. Very last question I have, because uh, you we didn't even hardly get to get into emulation that much, but uh, it is, is hard for me to discern uh, much difference between it, maybe it is the same thing, emulation or AI, or you like it is the emulation oh, a robot or not? Very different, right? Very but different. Well, with AI, will is it going to? Is there a chance, or is it? Is there? Is as it progresses, will it become a god that is worshipped? Like it, it will be a know all, know everything. It'll be the the answer to uh, all of our questions. A super Google. Uh, Google's already a super being. We had Scott Galloway on last week, and he he said that. Like, I didn't even think of Google that way. It's like a super being that's being asked questions maybe that's never been asked on Earth before in some ways. And so uh, will AI become, has, has the potential to be a god where we go, oh, our savior. Uh, so I'm, of course, happy to come on the show again and talk about all the topics we didn't cover today. But uh, <laughs> Great. <laughs> so... I mean, AI just is the name for any kind of mind we make that, uh, you know, isn't what we have now. So AI in principle just covers this vast space of possibilities. It's, it's hard to say very much about what AI will be because it'll be a wide range of things. Emulation is much more specific. Emulation is say we take a human being and we make a computer model that's just like that human. So I was able to do a whole book about the age of M because that's a very specific assumption, which has a lot of very specific implications. If you want to say, well, what does the world of AI look like? Then I have to say, well, which AI, which kind of AI? Cause there's this vast space of what they could be. Um, so a world of 
mean, AI so far, they're just, you know, more and more automation and more and more machines, but so far they've all been really stupid. <laughs> they've been <laughs> capable and useful, but compared to humans, they're, they're in a sense, we think they're pretty stupid. They are, they aren't very intelligent and that's how it'll be for a long time. And so in that world, AI is just in the background as tools that we use that uh, help us, but that don't stand out as a person in our face because they can't stand up to that because they aren't smart enough to sit in that role. Uh, someday we will have AI that is that good. And then very soon after, it'll be much better. You know, won't stay very long at just like the human level. Um, and at that point, the most likely scenario is, well, those things run the world and it doesn't matter whether you worship them because you don't matter. <laughs> You're in a world where humans are the main thing and their opinions matter. And so who they right. worship matters. But once you aren't the thing that matters, then who cares? <laughs> Right. The, the AI, the AI isn't there to be worshiped by you. Just, you're not here to be worshiped by squirrels. Do squirrels right. worship us? You don't know. Right. You don't care. Right. 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 <laughs> Unimportant. Mean, so the age point. of M yeah. is this world where the, the machines that replace humans are very human-like and you can think a lot about them, but even they eventually may be displaced by AI. So that's a more interesting trajectory that I have some analysis on, but at least that puts off that date because the M's are much more competitive than humans. So there is AI that could beat humans, but they can't beat M's because mm -hmm. M's are cheaper and can copy themselves and have all these advantages. So, mm -hmm. um, but see, it's not very interesting to have an AI be a God because if it's a God and there's lots of them, then, then that's the world of things that run things that matter. You are no longer a thing that matters much they aren't there to be your gods. They're there to run their world and be in their world. They don't care about their relation to you yeah. because you're nothing, right? There's no value in us. Yeah. Which but is really, yeah. <laughs> Which is a really creepy thought, meaning that the worship only is about the person doing it, not about the God at all, which is a whole nother subject for another day. But well, thank you so, so much. The, I mean, this raises this interesting question about the whole concept of God. You yeah. have to realize like, the concept of God is this powerful creature. And sometimes they had these gods, plural, where many gods existed with each other. And then somehow there were these very powerful gods, but then there were all of us who weren't gods. And somehow they let us continue to exist and use up space and resources. And what the hell was that? How, how does right. that, you know, how does that story work? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> where these gods continue up in Mount Olympus and they, they seem to enjoy partying and doing things. And every once in a while they come down here and interact with us, but like they don't take over and run things or run us out of the way and replace us with, copies of them like right so you know after this evolutionary insight that we is now you know century and a half old the ancients didn't really think in these terms the ancients didn't really ask this question well why don't the gods displace us mm -hmm. and now we do ask that question if they're, if they're going to or something right well now yeah. we say well if there's this race of gods like and we think of any sort of race of things, the things that naturally expand and has internal conflicts and there's greedy and self-centered, then we expect it to, uh, to do what those sort of creatures do. And that's what this, all these expressions of simulations and emulations are. So if there's simulations, there'll be billions of them and we'll use them and we'll replicate. Like that's what you do if you're a person of need and conflict and greed and desire. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I should have ended on the optimism part. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
but if I say I'm optimistic but don't have any good reason to, that shouldn't be terribly reassuring to your listeners. Right. <laughs> it's just, he knows it's just everything. It's all thing. dark and negative. It's just I happen yeah. to ha- have a genetic disposition for optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Not for any evidence, though. Well, well okay, thank you so, so much. So I got to say, like, the thing that most appealed to me about science fiction was just this reassuring image that eventually our descendants would be vast and powerful compared to us, right? And there's just something appealing about that. They, they will be different. They have different priorities. They may be selfish. They may not even respect or remember us anywhere, but we will go places. We will be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm optimistic about that. That is the thing I'm most confident of is that unless we manage to kill ourselves, which is bad, but hopefully, you know, not so likely, our descendants will be vast and powerful. And galactically. Do big you, you, things. You think. More, more than galactically. More than yes. galactically. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that uh, next time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Robin, this was thank great, you so Robin. much. Yeah. Great to talk to you. All right. Well, we got to talk to Robin for longer than usual. I, was, I, I wasn't going to waste any of that time of having his brain on lease the way I look at it. But I will have to confess that I know he didn't know this, and I'm sure y'all didn't know this, even though we're looking at each other on Skype this whole time and I'm making a lot of eye contact. Yeah. But I peed twice during that interview in a cup below (laughs) (laughs) and nobody he nor y'all knew it i don't think but i did pee twice in cups (laughs) i did think there was a couple times like matt sure is interesting your face face. like my god he's captivated right now you you know you had the pee face i didn't know it i'm surprised you didn't have to stop the interview to go yet (laughs) i was yeah i know i wasn't going to do that though but The, the worst thing about that interview for me was me it's just like I feel like it's so crazy that this podcast, like the, uh, we started this band and uh, this band called Emory that does screamo music, and that helped us start this podcast and people listen to it, and we are here getting to talk to somebody like Robin, <laughs> that, uh, like he should he should he was, should not be talking to me. I hurt the world ha- having him have to. I talk swear, to I feel me. too. Like, why would he give two hours to us? That is not uh, is a terrible decision on his part to sit. There I just I, I couldn't. I mean, he should have charged. <laughs> uh, we should have. Uh, I mean, th- 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 the, he's worth unbelievable amounts of money. I mean, it's, uh, that's what I'm saying. I, his idea for a podcast. Oh God, I'd listen to that so good. Yeah, maybe maybe we can spend that all. I mean, I would. T- I, that's why I was so thrilled for him to mention something like that because. You know, I'm sure I could follow up with an email, give me a couple of pointers, and maybe I could adopt that format or make an episode or two like that because that's so great. That's the way I like to think too. Of course, I'm just right. he can do it and I can't, but you know, it still gives me something to aspire to in some way because there's yeah. something about his mind that resonates with mine. It's just mine isn't good and his is, or he worked on. It. I don't know, like, but this, his pattern of thinking is what I always wish people thought like. But it's also I recognize from doing that interview that. I can see why that's hard to interface with in any practical way. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if that's entertaining or boring or what. Like, it's it's just, it's a different wavelength of, of thinking. So maybe it's interesting or not interesting or useful or not useful. It's kind of weird like that. I don't know well, what, it, what other people think about it, it. It's very clear both you and him, that folks like you guys, are on a path of learning certain things. And then it may, like, it takes you... A, it really is a journey in a way. Like that, that's what I'm saying. Like I said, the he he years ago would have said, "Yeah, recycling is stupid." Yeah, it's, right. Or you know, he he knows yeah. he has the data on it, and now through life and experience, and most likely relationship, he goes, "Oh well, 
maybe. If it, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Sam Harris goes, it's bad to have kids. But you have kids, and it, it, uh, it all the badness of it is still you got to do it or you should or so, it, it, do it. And it, the good, even if it's small, outweighs the bad of it, which is true. So I, I'm okay with that answer, actually. I mean, that helps me, too. I mean, I, I'm going to continue. I re- took out the recycling today, and I'm going to continue <laughs> doing it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to take some big stand on something like that, which is probably maybe even helpful to a lot of people. Maybe that's the thing. It's okay. Like, I, I think a lot of times people want to view people like Robin as harsh and unchanging, and I don't think that. Actually, it seems like when he does say something, it, it's from real experience and a thoughtful process. Like, mm-hmm. he, he is changing on maybe just something as simple as recycling. Or the a small idea like recycling. Well, he said he could change on a dime with the information. That m- most people like that mental flexibility. That right. note there, like he, if but, he gets different evidence, I, I, yeah. then he won't worry about it. He'll just change his opinion then, and that'll be fine. If right, he can but incorporate I th- yes. a higher level, then he will. You know? I don't think people believe it that though, or think of him that way as changing his no, ideas no. or being flexible. I don't think they think that way about him. And that's, that's it robs him a little. Well, do bit. people find that boring or enter- how do you, do you find that entertaining or intimidating? Like, what is the state you're in during a lot of that? It, you know, oh, I, did it I go mean, by slowly or quickly? It was, I loved long. it. I, I thought it went by quickly. Um, I, I mean, I thought it was fabulous. Honestly, I thought I really enjoyed. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, we are getting to hear from somebody that has thought about everything <laughs> on, a way, on a way higher level than me. And it's super valuable. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I can ask, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can move on past something. Like, what, what a great point. It doesn't, it wouldn't matter. Like, the reason I asked him the coronavirus question is because I've seen it on TikTok nonstop. People saying conspiracy theory. Conspiracy, and I, I get so frustrated with conspiracy theories because everybody says conspiracy. And the truth would be there are conspiracies and uh, stuff does happen. But even if so, what, what's the, helpful thing to focus yeah, on that like why would you stay there on yeah i mean to stop it next time what are you talking about you you won't ever stop a conspiracy right isn't that the point of them like there'll be a different one another if they're, if they're i mean if if there are conspiracies that you find out that means most of them worked it, and you didn't yeah, know it, right <laughs> yes it kind of highlights the fact that what we're not interested is in dealing looking at something for what right. it is and dealing with it we're more right. interested in having some cosmic knowledge or blame or avoidance. Of right. Blame. That's really more what's usually driving our behavior is basically I agree. the idea. I, in fact, I wish I would have got to say this too, though, with the whole coronavirus thing. I love that idea. I wish, I, I mean, I would do it. I promise you, I would do it today for free. And if, if I you could. You would take the virus today. Yeah. If I could guarantee, my, I guess you can't guarantee, I would, my, my dad, but I wouldn't want my kids to potentially die. But it seems like from everything I've seen, this it goes lighter on kids. It's mostly bad right. for older folks or people with previous conditions. Right. So I don't, I'm not really worried like about my kids dying from the virus. So I am. I would be more concerned that they get it when it's real bad and all the hospitals yeah. are full. And, and, and then maybe, when they break their leg, they don't get medical care and die. I mean, from infection and stuff like right. that. Right. Because that will happen. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like That's if you told me, if, yeah. if you told me right now, I'm going to give my if you. you you, I'm going to give the, your whole family the coronavirus, but you're going to be under medical care. And so if your temperature gets high, we, we're going to watch everything. You, we're, you're going to be safe and, and immediate access to health care. Doesn't that make sense? And Instead of oh, when it, if it is really bad and I can't get into the hospital and then people are carrying or, around or guns. Or something, and the any other medical condition empty. you have is clogged out of medical anything. care. 
Because think right, about all the times saying. when you go to the emergency room now, and if you knew everybody down at the ER, there's a line out the door, and right. everybody has the a bad virus, well, think of how many things you're not going to go get medical care for that will result in deaths. That, that have a higher than 0.2% rate in children or whatever. The, I mean, the truck driver's not bringing the, the the new shipment of bread to the grocery store, all this stuff. And you're like, oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to stock up on stuff, but after talking to Robin, I'm thinking maybe I just should. Maybe I should for a while. But the, the thing that really scared me about what he's talking about, and this is why people are shrugging it off, He's talking about the long play of this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not the, the immediacy. Not like next yeah. month you're going to be, no, no, everybody's going to be panicking. Yeah. No, he's talking like, yeah. oh, yeah. And it's going to and you're going to be, it, that, that seems really scary. Yeah. Get used to long term stuff. Like, that's what Bridget was like. She went to, co- I mean, we probably spent 800,000 bucks on supplies, to be honest. But I, not that I'm in a hurry, but I just, I know Bridget's anxiety and what she's thinking. So I just validate, let's do. So Wait, you've already bought stuff for coronavirus? Oh, yeah. We've got a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Bridget's like that though. Oh uh, yeah, probably, it, probably. But Brid, but Bridget is like that though, and I like that quality. I mean, there, you cannot believe how many times she's right. prepared for something, and I just am blown away by it. And so, this not about coronavirus or the immediate thing, but we have we work on a plan of things that we stock that would be used and inventoried, and and it's a it's a kind of a fun smart project that I kind of enjoyed working on and. To pre- yeah. just a preparation mindset and deciding things in advance to deal with things down the road. I like that thing, but she's driven a little bit more by, you know, anxiety and stuff like that. But I just kind of am lean. I'm just, I'm trying to negotiate that instead of just act like an idiot and say, you're crazy. It doesn't matter. And be unprepared. I mean, there's no reason to do that. So we've got a bunch of food and stuff like that, but I'm not really worried about it on, on, on that level. But she's worried about, well, should I touch the stuff? Should I wipe it? Is it okay to go here? Is it okay to go there? I said, anything you're doing right now, Think about learning to do it for the next year. Not it doesn't matter about this week. If you touch something or go somewhere or the kid goes to childcare or not, start yeah. to just develop the ability, the flexibility to adopt new habits over the next six months. So don't do anything now that you don't think you'll also be able to continue to do. That's right. the stuff you can do. Like, can I take one step and maintain it, just like a diet or exercise? Not I'm gonna work out super hard this weekend to lose weight. You have to begin to adapt your behaviors in a way that you'll be able to stand it across time in your habits is, is probably the way to handle this. All right. Well, I just went on Amazon. I bought 48 bag, giant bags of rice and, 100, <laughs> and 142 life straws. You know what life straws <laughs> are? life straws? No. It's the thing you go to the river and it cleans the water for you. You just drink it straight out of the river so you don't oh, get dysentery. Hilarious. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> I see those sometimes. I'm like, I gotta have one. I don't know yeah. why. I don't even. I don't ever think about going to a river, but mm-hmm. maybe I'd have to. I don't know. I, I, I think medical supplies be... are the way to go, though. You may oh, be caring right. for you and your neighbors, and you may right. be caring for caring for other people in ways that aren't related to the coronavirus because there's no medical system. Right. So think about that. If you weren't doing medical, but like would you what though? Do your own stitches get, uh, and butterfly of... bandages and antibiotic creams and you know oh, things. God. Just things like that that you probably just basic medicine things that you go to the doctor and it's like whatever yeah. like what of that could you have done yourself and you might have to think of it that yeah. way. But Reva's sitting there going, yeah, but what about pop tarts? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a generator or anything, you know. That's what I'm thinking about. Chip bags of chips, life straws. I, I always think I need lanterns. Yeah, uh, about that. <laughs> Under waterproof matches. <laughs> Right. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, a thing that'll always start a fire, like a, immediately. A snake bite kit. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. In case I get rattle, a rattlesnake bite, yeah, yeah. I gotta survive. Yeah. Yeah. What if we get rattlesnake bit, Jeff? Yeah, you're going camping. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hey, we gotta get out of here. But one thing that you don't want to miss and you want to prep for immediately is the BC Con early bird tickets, and the only way you can get those used to be in the BC Club, but now we have opened it up. So. You should have joined the BC Club. You didn't. We're nice. So we are doing early bird tickets for sale for the BC Con. When is it, Reva? I can't even remember. I, we'll probably, I probably won't be alive when it happens. But <laughs> the BC Con, even if I don't make it. It'll still go on. It'll, it'll go on without me. June 5th to the 7th. Yep. It's in, in Kansas, Kansas City. City. It's going to be amazing. So many BC folks, BC fans, BC clubbers, collective, a bunch of people getting together, having a good time. So make sure you do it. All right, let's get out of here. I got to go prep. Can a good man do bad things? Can he hurt someone he loves more than anything? Find himself.